Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done, too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available ProPower Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Jesse James was one of the most infamous bank and train robbers in the history of the American Old West. The image of the outlaw, narrowly escaping capture after another brazen bank or train robbery. Guns ablazing, saddled atop a galloping getaway steed, is an iconic image of the American Old West. James is one of the leading members of the James Younger Gang of Outlaws, a man involved in numerous holdups that left far too many men dead. Jesse robbed and killed for the entirety of his adult life. And he made a lot of enemies and also gathered a lot of admirers during a long criminal run. Robert Pinkerton, son of Alan Pinkerton, founder of America's first private detective agency, not an admirer. When speaking to a reporter for the Richmond Democrat on November 20th, 1879, he said, I consider Jesse James the worst man without any exception in America. He is utterly devoid of fear and has no more compunction about cold-blooded murder than he has about eating his breakfast. The editor of the Lexington, Kentucky's questionably named 19th century paper, The Weekly Caucasian, wrote about Jesse and his fellow gang members in nothing but glowing terms in an article written on October 17, 1874. All the annals of romantic crime furnish no parallel to the exploits of Missouri's bold rovers. Since Ishmael hung out his shingle 37 centuries ago in the deserts of Eden, as a dashing, untamable boss brigand, they have been unsurpassed. They've laid Aladdin in the shade and snuffed out all his marvel hatching lamps. They've eclipsed the wildest wonders of the Arabian Nights and rendered commonplace the most incredible achievements of the Cid. They've made the tales of the Crusaders and the Buccaneers stale nursery croonings, Achilles and Hector, Barabbas, Rob Roy, Dick Tarpon, and sixteen-string Jack dwindle to ordinary marauders beside them. John Edwards, Editor of the Sedalia Democrat also seemed to have a lot of love for Jesse James, writing the following for James' April 1882 obituary. We called him outlaw, and he was, but fate made him so. When the war closed, Jesse James had no home, hunted, shot, driven away, 
a price upon his head, what else could the man do except what he did? When he was hunted, he turned savagely about and hunted his hunters. Summing up the legend of Jesse James decades after his death, early and mid-20th century American poet Carl Sandburg said, Jesse James is the only American who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical. James was a hero to some and a cold-blooded murdering thief to others. His divided legacy reflected the divided time and place he lived in. Jesse was born in Missouri, a state far more culturally split than most in the years leading up to, during, and immediately following the Civil War. Officially, Missouri fought for the Union, but culturally, it was a Southern Dixie state through and through. Missouri was a border state tucked into the Midwest, sharing traits of all the regions around it, the industrialness of the Northeast, the pioneer self-sustaining family farms of the Northwest, and the slaveholding plantation traditions of the South. 75% of Missouri's population was from the South or from other border states comprised of people primarily from the South. Jesse's own family heritage was Southern. Clay County, where he was born and raised, was especially Southern in culture. In Missouri as a whole, slaves accounted for only 10% of the state population, but in Clay County, they constituted 25%. Missouri was a very atypical Union ally. The state entered the Union in 1821 as a slave state following the Missouri Compromise of 1820. When Congress agreed that slavery would be illegal in all Louisiana Purchase Territory north of the 36 degrees and 30 foot line of latitude except Missouri. Missouri was a northern state with a culture that was largely pro-Confederate and pro-slavery. And when the Civil War broke out, much of Missouri went to battle with itself. And James' family, as Confederate sympathizers, ended up on the losing side. During the Civil War, James' older brother Frank fought on behalf of the Confederates with a band of guerrillas, making him an outlaw since he was legally required to fight on behalf of the Union. And towards the end of the war, Jesse joined his brother and became a wanted man himself. The first criminal acts of Jesse James were undoubtedly political. He was fighting for the South in a northern state. It was the war that initially made him an outlaw. And when the war was over and he began to rob trains and banks, Confederate sympathizers continued to see Jesse's acts not as criminal exploits, but as acts of political defiance. He was seen as fighting the Union oppression of Southern culture. He was a hero. His robberies and murders played a part in what was perceived as a Confederate effort to achieve post-wartime political goals by violent means. However, had Jesse James existed a century later, he would have simply been called an anti-American domestic terrorist. And as his crimes continued, it got harder and harder to rationalize him as any sort of revolutionary. And it got easier to see him as a ruthless killer and a thief exploiting pro-Confederate sympathies for his own personal financial gains. Were his motivations political or did he kill, rob, and maraud just to make a quick buck and spread his growing infamy? The legend of Jesse James and the Old West gang he rode with is a complicated one, and we enthusiastically dissect and explore it here today and the times these men lived in in this yeah, 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 Wild West outlaw historical edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening. Happy Monday, meet sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, Sir Suckington, the big suck, big daddy suck, master the suck, and he who sucks the longest, hardest, and the deepest. And you are listening to Time Suck, you beautiful, curious bastards. Welcome to the cult of the curious. 
Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Step on in. Take your clothes off. Put here, put on one of these robes. Grab a ceremonial sword and a power amulet and start chanting. It's all normal. It's all very normal. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise good boy Bojangles. And yacht rock bad boy Michael motherfucking McDonald. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Do you think it's okay to drive stoned? It's not. The truth is, although you may not be aware of it, your reaction times slow way, way down when you're high. That's not buzzkill, it's science. You not only put yourself in danger, but you put everyone around you in danger. So stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If if you've been using marijuana in any form, and that includes edibles, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. It makes sense. Drive high, get a DUI. Stay safe on those roads, meat sacks. Don't ruin your life or someone else's. Uh, I got a fun show for you today and a bunch more great messages regarding vaccines and, and much else in today's Time Sucker updates. I can now say uh, I for sure had a blast at the Big Time Suck the Gathering event this past Saturday. Huge thank you to our event intern, Derek Hall, and his lovely wife, Paige, for flying out, helping out. Big thanks to the High Priestess Harmony Camp for helping out so much as well. Glad she is with us here in the Suck Dungeon. She made it to CDA, and we are grateful. Also, thank you to one of our social media moderators, Liz Hernandez. Liz came out from Ohio to help. Uh, Liz is too much fun. Hope she returns. Thanks to Craig and TJ, everyone involved at 10 Over 6, that awesome New Orleans-style restaurant here in CDA. We had a custom Time Suck photo booth, custom Time Suck menu with stuff like Chicken Joe's Pimp Cane Chicken Sautés, drinks like the Reverend Doctor, and Polish as fuck. The New York City Piano Bar after party was incredible, as was a day full of Suck Dungeon tours. Loved one of the piano players there as a Time Sucker as well. And the coolest part of all, seeing so many people uh, who'd never met each other in person. People sometimes who had not even met online and just see them hanging out and laughing and having fun like they've been good friends for 20 years. Can't wait to try and make next year's gathering even bigger and better. Fucking friendship, fellowship. Hail Nimrod, I love seeing it. In the CDA Suck Dungeon with Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock Johnson Paisley again today. Don't forget he had his micropene surgically replaced. The script keeper, high priestess, also here. Polish as fuck, queen of the suck, running everything else in my family's life today like she usually is, like the like the badass, sexy, running shit bitch she truly is. Hail Lucifina. Uh, thank you so much for the recent ratings and reviews and the uh, Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel subscriptions. Over 8,500 ratings on iTunes, which really helps this show find new listeners. It has been finding new listeners. Listenership has doubled since January. We're up to 2 million total downloads a month now. Incredible. Very thankful. Uh, you can also find the trailer to my new podcast, Scared to Death, on Spotify and YouTube on the Bad Magic Productions channel. I'll be trying to scare the shit out of Lindsay with two allegedly true horror to- uh, tales, you know, uh, each week, starting September 17th at midnight Pacific time. Two episodes that first night, so four stories the first night, then a new weekly episode each Tuesday at midnight after that. And hopefully the new podcast trailers out on iTunes, Google Play, everywhere else by the time you hear this damn submission processes. Be gone, Lucifina. Stop fucking with my new show. I uh, hope to see some of you in Southern California this week. Hollywood Comedy Store this Thursday, August 29th. Happy Murder Tour then hits La Jolla. The Comedy Store just a bit outside of San Diego on August 30th, 31st, September 1st. Uh, one show at Thalia Hall in Chicago, Friday, September 13th. Copper Blues Live in Phoenix, September 19th to the 21st. 
Live time suck. Ant Hill kids happening on the 21st there as well. Then Indianapolis, West Palm Beach, Tampa, special taping. And Monty, uh, Pontiac, Michigan at the Crowfoot Ballroom. More tour dates at dankelmans.tv. Thanks so much for showing up to the uh, stand-up shows. More and more time suckers showing up. Seems like you guys have been loving the new material. I've been having a lot of fun on stage. And now it's time to have a lot of fun right here. Let's have some fun here. You guys, hey, do you guys like fun? Let's do it. Let's get to topic time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesse Woodson James, one of the uh, best remembered and most exaggerated characters of the Old West. His tale is the story of a man who grew up without a father, got really good at killing and guerrilla warfare, became a famous outlaw, even married and had kids with his first cousin before meeting his own violent end. Yep, more cousin fucking this suck. Incest and history go together like, uh, well, like first cousin penises and first cousin vaginas, I guess. Jesse James was seen by some as a heroic Robin Hood-like figure. Legends persist to this day of his buried treasures, coded diaries, and treasure maps. Both Jesse and his older brother Frank first learned to kill during the Civil War. More on that in a bit. Uh, Jesse James also at the center of a number of conspiracy theories that have linked him with secret societies like the Freemasons and a pro-slavery group called the Knights of the Golden Circle. Conspiracy theorists include Jesse James' alleged great-great-grandson, who has claimed to have extensively researched, written, and spoken about his family's crazy history for more than 20 years. We'll get into uh, the conspiracies towards the end of this episode. Before we get into today's shoot 'em up, rob, and ride away timeline, deal, detailing the crimes that made Jesse famous, let's take a look at some of the context that helped form his life. We'll start, of course, with his start. Uh, Jesse Woodson James, born in Clay County, Missouri, on September 5th, 1847. Now, legend has it that he shot his way out of his mother's uterus with a Colt Walker six shot revolver, came out with a bandana, hiding his face. Cowboy hat on his head, thick beard stubble on his face. Not only could he walk at birth, he could ride a dog like a horse. And that's exactly what he did. He rode the family sheepdog into town and killed two men in a saloon robbery within 30 minutes of taking his own first breath of air. Then he poured himself a glass of whiskey, swallowed it in one gulp, and said his first words. Oh, fuck milk. I reckon this will do just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, to be clear, that is a real Jesse James legend. It just happens to be one that I just made up that no one else cares about. Jesse was the son of Kentucky natives. 22-year-old Zarelda Cole James and her husband, 29-year-old Robert James, a.k.a. Bobbert James, a well-educated man who received a Master's of Arts, graduated with honors from Georgetown College. That's not Georgetown University. It's a lesser-known Georgetown, but it is a Georgetown. He went on to be a Baptist minister, wealthy hemp farmer. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. Hemp, player. Bobbert getting high as fuck on the James farm. Uh, He introduced young Jesse to reggae. Taught him how to hacky sack. Showed him how to use a water bong like a champion. Now, hemp and marijuana look the same, but hemp doesn't uh, uh, doesn't have nearly enough, excuse me, THC to get you high. Bummer. Jesse would have grown up harvesting and smoking some weed. He probably would have lived longer. Had a happier life. Robert and Zarelda James migrated to Missouri after visiting Zarelda's mother and stepfather who already lived there. They liked the fertile countryside, saw the agricultural potential of the rich farmland. Once in Missouri, after briefly living with Zarelda's parents, Robert invested in a 225-acre farm in Clay County, Missouri, and eventually owned a reported six slaves. And yes, uh, the the James were slave owners, and I know that obviously can be a uh, you know a huge turnoff. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be for a, a lot of listeners, but just remember this happened a long time ago when people grew up and essentially didn't really know anything different. I mean, sure, in, in that sense, even in the times, ethically, not good. 
Not, not good to do that. But if we cut out people who were around that kind of culture, well, we lose a lot of very interesting sucks. So just want a little disclaimer. I know. Yes, not good. Again, long time ago, very different culture. Uh, as we mentioned already, Jesse was born into the world with an older brother named Alexander Franklin James, better known as Frank, who had been born four years prior to Jesse. Frank would be Jesse's partner in crime for the rest of Jesse's days. Two years after Jesse was born, Jesse's sister, Susan Lavinia James, was born on November 25th, 1849. For the first few years of Jesse's life, the James kids, by all accounts, lived a prosperous farm life. And then their dad fucked everything up by heading further west. The Reverend Robert James was asked to serve as a chaplain on a wagon train heading to California during the gold rush, and he decided to leave his young family forever. His daughter was just a few months old in search of gold. He would claim uh, somewhat that he was going, you know, to save souls, but the contemporaries around him seemed to think that, you know, he's, he got uh, big dollar signs in his eyes and thought he could just make a fortune out there. Little Jesse, just two years old, wrapped his tiny arms around his father's leg, begged him not to go, but go he did, and then a year later he was dead. He made it all the way to California, but then on August 18th, 1850, he died of cholera in Placerville, California. Came down with the bad case of the devil's butt flu. And the next thing you know, McGill's pop. Blew his butthole clean off. He was dead in seconds. And that's a little Donner Party suck joke showing back up in this tale. If you're a new listener, don't worry. You probably can't blow off your butthole if you come down with cholera. Robert's death left his family in financial shambles. Within a year, the congregation, the deceased Reverend Robert, used to preach to, was taking a collection plate, uh, you know, passing a collection plate on behalf of his now destitute family. Before Robert headed west, he'd borrowed money from locals, also pledged money to fund William Jewell College, a college he helped open in 1849, a college that still exists today in Liberty, Missouri, a little small liberal arts college, uh, about 800 students. After his death, creditors coming to collect from his widow, Zerelda. And when her cash was gone, many of her possessions were sold at a series of auction estates, or estate auctions, excuse me, to uh, you know, get cash needed to live on. Uh, sounds heartless, but other Missourians, they were hurting for money too at this time. The whole area was going through a little regional economic crisis thanks to farms being abandoned before the crops were harvested in the wake of ruthless cholera and measles outbreaks in 1849 and 1850. Sure is nice not having those outbreaks now, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty nice. Thanks, doctors. Thanks, vaccines. Uh, desperate. Now 25-year-old Zerelda entered a marriage of convenience on September 30th, 1852. She wed a 50-year-old widowed and wealthy farmer who lived two miles away. Gross. Uh, 52-year-old, I believe, is how old he was. I I have 50 in my notes here, but my memory says 52. She married a dude named Benjamin Sims who loved his hot young wife. Maybe loved is a bit strong. Lusted. He lusted a woman half his age, maybe a little less than half his age. Also hated her kids. So when Zerelda moved into his home, she had to leave nine-year-old Frank, five-year-old Jesse, not quite three-year-old Susan, with some friends who took over and ran what was left of her farm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like that kind of marriage? You need to get married to, to financially stay afloat. And then your, you know, soon to be husband is like, all right, you, but not, not the kids. I mean, what a fucking asshole. Listen, sugar tits, I'll marry you, sure. So only if you ditch those whiny booger picking whippersnappers. And again, how do you tell the kids? Just, hey, hey kids, good news. Uh, money problems are over. Get married. To a wealthy farmer two miles away, he has a great big house, butlers and maids, cooks, the finest food, big yard, lots of shade and room to roam. Bad news is he can't come. He doesn't, he can't stand you. To no one's surprise, the marriage didn't last long. Uh, Zerelda left Benjamin within a year to return to her kids. I can only imagine the fights they had had during that marriage. 
Why are you crying all the time? Are you on your period again? Stop blabbing about missing your brats. I don't want tears in my supper. Make me a pot roast. Sing me a happy song, woman. If I wanted to marry a crybaby, I would have actually married a baby. Lord knows I considered it. 25-year-old lady bits are a bit too ripe for me to want to stick my diddle parts in. Get, get moving! Uh, when Benjamin died just a few months after Zerelda left him on January 2nd, 1854, in a horse accident, Zerelda, according to what friends of hers would say years later, was overjoyed. Zerelda wasted little time uh, and had uh, uh, had one more estate auction to settle the last of her debts. It was able to keep most of her land, wasted a little time getting back on her feet. And then she married her third and final husband, Dr. Archie Reuben Samuel, on September 25th, 1855. Archie Samuels was 27 at the time, and she was 30. A little more evenly matched this time. Upon their marriage, at her request, he gave up doctrine. Whiskey, London, saw. And he worked at the James Farm. Uh, he helped grow tobacco, also adopted Susan, Jesse, and Frank. And then they'd have four more children together. He even signed a prenuptial agreement that guaranteed Zerelda ownership of the farm and their slaves after his death. Something extremely uncommon, if not entirely unheard of, for a man to do at that time in that place. A reporter commented decades later that Archie was under Zerelda's dominion. Now, numerous contemporaries said things like, you know, she wore the pants kind of thing. Uh, after some early childhood unsteadiness with his father's death and then being briefly abandoned during his mother's second marriage, things seemed to settle down for young Jesse, now eight years old, after his mother's third marriage. And Jesse might have grown up to be a Missouri farmer himself, but then the Civil War showed up and changed everything for everyone. The war would drag his older brother, Frank James, into a life of fighting, and then Jesse would soon follow. Let's take a quick beak, quick beak. I don't know how you do that. Let's take a quick peek at Jesse's older brother, Frank, the forgotten James brother, who would also be one of the leaders of the infamous James Younger gang. Franklin James, the lesser known older brother of the legend, was born in Clay County, Missouri as well, over four years before Jesse, January 10th, 1843. As a child, young Jesse, uh, excuse me, young uh, Frank showed interest in his late father's sizable library, especially the works of William Shakespeare. Frank's profound love of Shakespeare would inspire him to carry copies of the Bard's plays in his saddlebags years later while being pursued by Union soldiers and later law officers. He would also memorize lines and recite them to other bandits. Pretty, pretty funny image. Bunch of dusty cowboys sitting around a campfire, hiding out after a heist. And Frank, uh, maybe after a couple couple drinks, stands up just. Is this a dagger which I see before me? A handle toward my hand. Come let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and I, yet I see thee still. Art thou not, fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet, in form as palpable, as this which now I draw. What tarnation you blown about, Frank? We don't care continental about no Billy Shakespeare. God damn, what the hell? Frank received a much better education than most rural Missouri farm kids at the time. The James family was only a mile from the Somerset School that Frank attended regularly until he was 18. Which is long, that's old to be a, to be a, a school kid at, at that time. Frank reportedly wanted to become a teacher, was an avid learner. And then Frank was going to attend William Jewell College, continue his education, study at the school his father helped establish, but instead the war happened. Civil War in the U.S. began in 1861 after decades of simmering tensions between northern and southern states over slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion. Jesse James was just barely a teenager, only 13 when the war broke out. Too young to fight initially. Frank was 18, though. And when the war got going, the James farm had slaves. The James family felt that uh, slavery was necessary to keep their farm, their livelihood going. And so Frank 
found himself in the tricky spot of being expected to fight for the North, whose victory could spell financial ruin for his slave-owning family. So now that we have a solid understanding of the circumstances that would pull Jesse into his future criminal ways, let's examine Jesse's entry into his outlaw life in today's Time Suck timeline right after a quick word from a sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you again uh, today by the Bell Gunnis Norwegian Massage Parlor. Let Bell put her murderous upper body strength to use, rubbing you down while she soothes your mind with her relaxing Norwegian accent. Oofta, oofta, hangy banky, pushing and the needing, rubbing and the tugging, putting the finger in your bottom fun button. Oofta, oofta. Bell's also recently teamed up with the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy to add some relaxing mouth instrumentation to her, her encouraging accent. Oofta, oofta, tinker, 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 tink, tinker, tink, tinker, tinker, tink, hosey, wosey, tinker, do, tinker, tink, tiddly, tinker, tink, tingy, dingy. And the best part is, if you fill out a life insurance policy and list Bell as your next of kin, it's all free. And that, of course, is not today's sponsor. It's just Nimrod punishing you for something you did. If you're a new listener, an inside joke from the Bell Gunna Sick. Also from that damn air banjo and it just can't seem to go away. It started way back in the drunk as fuck axmen suck. Time Suck Today is really brought to you by Harry's. A lot of you guys buy disposable razors when you travel. But this summer, you don't have to. You don't have to sacrifice quality for price. You don't have to trade saving a few bucks or possibly just still spending those bucks later on some Band-Aids to help heal the wounds you just covered your face with using a gas station razor blade that should be illegal. You might as well just shave your face with the raggedy edge of a spaghetti can lid. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's and claim your special offer by going to harrys.com slash timesuck. Do it. Do it, you son of a bitch. You do it right now. Harry's delivers high-quality, travel-friendly shave supplies at a great low price, just $2 per blade. To keep prices low, they cut out the middleman by purchasing a world-class blade factory in Germany, and now they can provide great quality at factory-direct prices. I've been using Harry's for about three or four months now, and guess what? Not a single cut. Super easy to pop blades, right, on and off. I love the easy-to-open-and-close blade cover so I don't slice up the ends of my fingers when I reach into my travel bag to, to grab it for a smooth shave. This summer, refresh your wallet and your face with a Harry's trial set. Comes with a weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip. Five-blade razor with a lubricating strip. Trimmer blade for a close shave. Rich lathering shave gel that will leave you smelling great. And a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go and not slice your fingertips up. Time suckers can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash timesuck. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash timesuck to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you so you can help support this show. Support the suck while you smooth up your skin. Link in the episode description. Now let's head to a time when razors weren't disposable or cheap. When you had to go to a barber for a smooth shave and you hope you didn't cut your throat. We're off to 1860 in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. November of 1860, anti-slavery advocate Abraham Lincoln is elected as president and the South, not happy. Lincoln only received 40% of the popular vote, won 59% of the electoral college votes, but he wasn't even on the ballot in some places in the deep South. The following month, South Carolina becomes the first state to secede from the Union. In their declaration for secession, they state, the North have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery. 
they have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. The next month, January of 1861, Florida, then Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and then Louisiana secede. In his Declaration of Secession, Georgia states, For the last 10 years, we have had numerous and serious causes of complaint against our non-slave-holding Confederate states with reference to the subject of African slavery. They have endeavored to weaken our security, to disturb our domestic peace and tranquility, and persistently refuse to comply with their express constitutional obligations to us in reference to that property, and by the use of their power in the federal government have striven to deprive us of an equal enjoyment of the common territories of the republic. Then on January 29th, Kansas becomes the 34th state, enters the union as a free state. A lot of people in Missouri, and in particular Clay County, get real anxious. They're now surrounded on three sides by states opposed to slavery. The James family are watching all these developments very closely. They feel like the union is closing in on them to take their farm. In February 1861, Texas secedes. Jefferson Davis is inaugurated as president of the Confederacy. At the Missouri State Convention, Missouri votes to remain in the union despite many in Missouri wanting to join the Southern cause, many including the James family. On April 12, 1861, the Civil War begins with the Battle of Fort Sumner. And then a lot happens in Missouri in the coming weeks. On May 10th, Volunteer Union Army Regiment led by Union Brigadier General Nathan Nathaniel Lyon captures a unit of secessionists at Camp Jackson outside of St. Louis. While marching the Confederate guerrilla soldiers into town to parole them, hostile pro-secessionist crowds gather. A shot is accidentally fired. Lyon's men end up firing into the mob, killing 28 civilians. Several days of rioting follow. Martial law is then declared and Union troops are dispatched into the city to calm things down, and many Missourians are pissed. Union soldiers, soldiers not from Missouri, have been sent in to control them. A renegade Confederate government is quickly established and is led by current Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson. And what a fucking great name, by the way. First, middle, last name, all solid. Claiborne, fuck yeah. Fox, uh uh-huh. Jackson, strong-ass names. Of course he was governor. You have way better odds of becoming governor if your name is Claiborne Fox Jackson than you do if you're saddled with a name like Flappy Weasel Sour Patch. No one takes Flappy Sour Patch seriously. No one trusts the weasel. Anyway, former Missouri, I wish there was somebody named that. Anyway, former Missouri Governor Sterling Price is put in charge of the Missouri State Guard, pro-Confederate state militia. Union General, uh, yeah, General Lyon takes over the state capitol in Jefferson City, pushes through legislation to kick out Governor Jackson and replaces him with the pro-Union governor. And then pro-Confederate General Price goes to battle against General Lyon. Like, things are happening real fast, a lot of inner turmoil. And in the midst of all this, in May of 1861, Frank James joins the Confederate army, goes to battle for General Sterling Price. And the destiny of his family is now changed forever. In the summer of 1861, the Union uh, and the Confederacy struggled for control of Missouri. Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyon's Army of the West camped at Springfield, Missouri with Confederate troops under the command of Brigadier General Ben McCullough and Major General Sterling Price, fast approaching. Again, you know, Frank James, one of those troops. August 9th, both sides formulated plans to attack the other. About 5 a.m. on the 10th, Lyon in two columns commanded by himself and Colonel Franz Sigel attacks the Confederates on Wilson's Creek about 12 miles southwest of Springfield. Rebel cavalry uh, received the first blow and fell back from Bloody Hill. Confederate forces soon rushed up, stabilized their positions. The Confederates attacked the Union forces three times that day, but failed to break through the Union line. And then General Lyon killed during the battle. Major Samuel D. Sturgis replaced him. Meanwhile, 
The Confederates route Sigel's column south of Skeggs Branch following the third Confederate attack, which ended at 11 a.m. Then Union forces withdrew. The Confederates had won. The Confederate victory was a shot of adrenaline for Southern sympathizers in Missouri, served as a springboard for a bold thrust north to carry Price and his Missouri State Guard as far as Lexington. In late October, a convention was convened by Governor Claiborne Fox fucking Jackson and passed an ordinance. <laughs> Weasel, oh, Weasel Sour Patch couldn't get anybody to come to his meeting. He's like, come on, come on, you guys. Fuck, shut the fuck up, Flappy. No one's coming to your convention. Um, the convention is convened by Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson. They passed an ordinance of secession. The Battle of Wilson's Creek had given the Confederates control of southwestern Missouri. Missouri found itself now in an odd place of having two governments, essentially each pledging allegiance to differing sides of the Civil War. The Southern government recognized Missouri, or at least part of Missouri, as being the 12th state of the Confederacy, and the 12th star on the Confederate flag did represent Missouri. However, the Union Army would soon regain much of the state and push the Confederate government into exile. While in the Missouri State Guard, Frank James served in the Battle of Lexington where an estimated 1,774 Union troops lost their lives. After this victory, Frank James followed Price as far as Springfield. Then he got sick. And got left behind when Price, even though he had won the victory at Lexington, abandoned the entire area to Union forces. Frank was captured and forced to take an oath of loyalty to the United States Union. Years later, when Frank visited Springfield as an official starter for the horse races at the annual Ozarks Empire Fair, he granted an interview to a local reporter. And it appeared in the Springfield, Missouri Republican, September 27, 1898. And he said, how well I remember that old courthouse and good cause I have to remember it. In 1862, I was a regular enlisted with General Price in the Confederate Army and was with him in Springfield. I took sick with pneumonia while in this city and was placed in that old courthouse. Price retreated and Curtis, the Yankee general, took possession of the town. As the Yankees marched by the courthouse 12 abreast, I looked out of the window and I thought I would not have any comrades soon, as there were enough Yankees in Curtis' army to kill every rebel in the South. In six weeks' time, I was able to be about but was prisoner and could not leave the courthouse. I uh, then commenced to plan how to escape, and one night managed to slip through the rear of the building and crawled out a window into the alley where I found a Yankee officer's horse, which I mounted. I wanted to join my regiment, but was cut off from Price and knew that the chances were greatly against me if I attempted to get past the Yankees who were between me and Price. So I started north and one evening rode into Quantrell's camp on this side of the Missouri River. I remained with Quantrell, for some time and finally became one of his regulars. I stayed with him. I consider Quantrell the greatest guerrilla leader. I found the Yankees, or I fought the Yankees four years and the whole world for 15 years. I surrendered to Governor Critterton, uh, Crittenden, not Critter. I was like, oh, that's weird. I surrendered to Governor Crittenden in 1882 and was glad to lay down my guns. I wish his name was Governor Critter. That'd be kind of a funny name. Uh, let's talk about Quantrell's Raiders now. The group that would bring Jesse James into the outlaw life. The group that Frank joined right after he left that courthouse. In July of 1862, Frank joins William Clark Quantrell's Raiders. Quantrell's Raiders were a group of approximately 200 men dedicated to Southern, you know, the Southern cause. And by the uh, summer of 1862, the Union Army had regained control of almost all of Missouri. By August, the state would have no regular Confederate presence. Missouri's Confederate government banished into exile, went down to Texas, but the fighting in Missouri didn't stop. Instead of official Confederate soldiers, groups of men, primarily slave owners with Southern sympathies, would band together into units of guerrilla fighters. And the most famous of these units was Quantrell's Raiders. Led by William Clark Quantrell, 
A man who'd lived all over the place in Utah, Texas, Ohio, Kansas, Missouri. A man with Southern sympathies who'd fought alongside Frank James for General Price. Quantrell and his men ambushed Union patrols. They ambushed supply convoys, seized mail, occasionally struck towns on either side of the Kansas-Missouri border. And Quantrell and his men didn't just attack soldiers. They directed much of their efforts against pro-Union civilians, attempting to drive them out of the area. Quantrell's guerrillas attacked Jayhawkers, their Union abolitionist guerrilla fighting equivalents. Union militia members and regular old farmers they felt were too loyal to Northern aggression. The Confederate Congress never formally acknowledged them, and the Union viewed them as nothing but criminals. And they certainly weren't Robin Hood's merry men. And neither were other groups like the Jayhawkers. Yes, the Jayhawkers freed slaves, but they also ruthlessly attacked Confederate families, burning down their farms, stealing their livestock, in some cases attacking and killing unarmed men, women, and children. The Civil War was a dirty war, and parts of Missouri had practically descended into anarchy at this time. While some of their plunder was sent to the South, most of the plunder that the Quantrell's raiders, you know, gathered, you know, was kept by the raiders themselves. And, and the band of these raiders included outlaws Thomas Coleman Younger and also Jim Cummins. And apparently Jim Cummins is one of my great, 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 not sure how many more greats, uncles. For real. Uh, at least he is according to my regular old uncle, Phil Cummins, who did some genealogy research. Talk about Jim a little bit more later. Uh, many of the men who would later ride with Jesse James and his gang first met each other in Quantrell's Raiders. Uh, Quantrill's men occasionally rode with the regular Confederate army fighting in battles such as the Battle of Prairie Grove, Arkansas in December of 1862. On August 21st, 1863, Quantrill led a massacre of Lawrence, Kansas, or in Lawrence, Kansas in the early morning hours. His raiders tore through the free state town, robbed two banks, looted other buildings, and then set basically the entire town on fire. And they killed between 150 and 180 men and boys, many of them unarmed. Frank James was a member of the Raiders and was part of this barbaric attack. There is some doubt as to whether Jesse was involved. However, he was said to have bragged about being involved later. Sources are murky when it comes to pinpointing the exact time Jesse James joined the Raiders. It seems as if he joined them sometime in either July or August of 1863. In late 1863, an incident occurred that would fuel Jesse's hatred of the, for the Union for the rest of his life. A party of Union soldiers invaded Jesse's mother's and stepfather's farm in late 1863, looking for information about the location of Quantrell's camp. Jesse, just 15 at the time, was questioned and horsewhipped when he refused to answer the soldiers' questions. And then Union soldiers roughed his mother, Zerelda, up. And then Jesse's stepfather, Dr. Samuel, who also denied knowing where the Raiders' camp was located, was dragged from his house, a rope was thrown around his neck, and he was repeatedly hanged from a tree in the yard. Somehow the doctor managed to survive this interrogation and torture, but he was never the same afterwards, suffering from major head trauma. And all this, you know, uh, really, of course, bothers Jesse, and Jesse is not a big fan of the Union. He wasn't a big fan before, really not a fan now. In 1864, young Jesse is shot in the chest while trying to steal a saddle from a pro-Union farmer. It would not be the last time he'd get shot in the chest and live. His legend begins. Also in 1864, a character named Bloody Bill Anderson enters Jesse's life. Jesse would soon join Bloody Bill Anderson's guerrilla forces. Man, what a wild time and place to be living in. I mean, can we just talk about that for a second? Can you imagine what, what life in Clay County, Missouri was like at this time? You're surrounded by the Civil War. Young men are being conscripted into the Union Army, while, you know, uh, other men from the same town, sometimes from the same family, are running out to fight for the Confederates. And then outside of the regular Union and Confederate armies, you have all these different, you know, militias springing up. No matter what side you're on, you're having to defend your farms, livestock, businesses, and lives from someone. You don't get to abstain. You don't get to be neutral unless you want to get attacked and plunder from both sides. 
If you're a slave owner, you either have to renounce your family's way of life entirely and fight for the Union or become an outlaw and fight for the South. With Jesse James, you're 16 years old, at the age of a high school sophomore. You're hanging around dudes like bloody fucking Bill. Of course, Jesse James became an outlaw. And there were all kinds of outlaws this time, too. I I should point that out as well. From the end of the Civil War to the hour of James' death, the various governors of Missouri proclaimed rewards for the capture of criminals more than 300 times. Only four of those proclamations would be for Jesse and his brother Frank. There were hundreds of other outlaws, along with hundreds and hundreds more who failed to attract gubernatorial attention. Men who committed murders, broke out of jails, robbed stagecoaches, banks and trains, even killed a U.S. marshal and burned a county courthouse. Jesse James is one of the few names that has lasted until today, but he was far from an anomaly. Crazy, crazy times. I can't imagine that kind of life. Now Now let's get back to this bloody Bill fucker. The man Jesse went to fight for and with in 1864 Uh, William Bloody Bill Anderson was born in the late 1830s, grew up in Missouri, moved to Kansas in the late 1850s. Arriving to settle on his father's land claim east of Council Grove, Anderson was soon immersed in the bitter fight over slavery that gave the area the nickname Bleeding Kansas. Again, insane time to be alive there. Before the Civil War, he trafficked stolen horses, escorted wagon trains along the Santa Fe Trail. When the war broke out, Anderson joined the anti-slavery, pro-union banded guerrillas that I mentioned earlier known as the Jayhawkers. And then he soon switched sides and joined a band of pro-Confederates called Bushwhackers. And this is all uh, starting to sound with these names like like, like some kind of WWE tag team wrestling match. Let's get ready to rumble. Okay, Gene, we have the Jayhawkers making their way to the ring. These guys love fighting, raiding, burning down barns, and they hate slavery. Very popular amongst African-American wrestling fans. Also making their way to the ring, we have the Bushwhackers. Very pro-slavery. They love it. Extremely unpopular amongst Missouri African-American wrestling fans. Let's get it on! In the partisan warfare of Kansas and Missouri, these groups were often more interested in robbery, looting, personal gain, than the advancement of political cause. And that's why these guys would sometimes ride with one group and then bounce to the other side. Some members were willing to die for the anti-slavery or pro-slavery cause. Many, if not most, were just exploiting the chaos of the time to make some quick money with whoever they thought was the best band to kind of ride with. So how did Bloody Bill Anderson get drawn into guerrilla fight? And hopefully you enjoyed that little wrestling thing. That was very fun. That was very fun to snap into for a second. Uh, the war drew in uh, Bill Anderson, just like he, uh, you know, the war would draw in the James brothers. He and his family had been living in Council Grove, you know, uh, in, at the start of the war. After Quantrell's Raiders raided Aubrey, Kansas on March 7th, 1862, Kansas Jayhawkers came to investigate. Southern sympathizers living nearby were sought out and accused of aiding Quantrell's Raiders. William Anderson's father and uncle were named among the sympathizers. When the Jayhawker company arrived at the Anderson farm on March 11th, William and his younger brother Jim were delivering 15 head of cattle to the U.S. commissary agent at Fort Leavenworth. And when the brothers returned to their family farm, they found their father and uncle dead. They had been hanged in retaliation. Also, the family farm had been burned to the ground and all their possessions stolen. So pretty bad day for Billy. Bloody Bill and his brother Jim tracked down the man in charge of hanging their dad and uncle and gunned him down. And then Bill became the head of a local band of Confederate guerrillas and his activities cast a shadow of suspicion over the rest of his family. Then a Union commander, General Thomas Ewing, arrested several wives and sisters of some of the members of Quantrill's raiders. While Anderson commanded his own band of men, he he often collaborated with Quantrill's larger force. As a result, the group Ewing arrested included three of Anderson's sisters who were now imprisoned in a temporary Union jail in Kansas City, Missouri. And then, 
On August 14th, 1863, this jail collapses and it and kills one of Anderson's sisters along with several other women. Quantrell and Bill, well, you know, fucking pissed. They assembled more than 400 men to exact revenge against the abolitionist community of Lawrence, Kansas, and any Jayhawkers present. On August 21st, the band killed at least 150 residents, burned down much of the town. Anderson personally was credited with 14 murders that day. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a single elimination cage match. The Jayhawkers, the Raiders, Bloody Bill, and the Bushwhackers all descend upon Lawrence, Kansas. Let's get ready to rumble! After this massacre, Anderson went to Texas that winter, married, returned to Missouri in 1864 with a band of about 50 fighters. Jesse James joined him, and then he embarked on a summer of violence, leading his group on a campaign that killed hundreds. So that's how he got the, you know, the name Bloody Bill. He's, uh, you know, it's some, some bad shit happened to his family, and he, uh, you know, it enacted some revenge big time. Uh, on September 27th, 1864, Bloody Bill led a raid on Centralia, Missouri, where a gang of more than 100 guerrillas robbed the pastors of an incoming train. 24 unarmed and wounded Union soldiers were dragged from the train by the frenzied ruffians and murdered in cold blood. Again, Bloody Bill didn't fuck around. The band of guerrillas, followed by an experienced federal infantry, about three miles south of Centralia, the Union forces were bushwhacked by the band and were nearly annihilated. Over 120 federal troops were killed. Only three of the guerrilla fighters were reported to have been killed in this battle. Both Frank and Jesse were part of this battle. Jesse is said to have killed Union Major A.B. Johnson and is credited with taking the lives of seven other men this day alone. Unclear if Frank and Jesse took part in the massacre of the unarmed Union soldiers earlier in the day. On October 26th, Bloody Bill's guerrillas are ambushed by Union soldiers in Independence, Missouri. Several guerrillas are killed. Bill Anderson himself is killed, decapitated. Uh, Jesse James and a few other guerrillas escape. The dead body of Bloody Bill, the blood-drenched savage, as he was referred to by some pro-Union journalists, was placed on public display before they cut his head off. Also, Anderson kept a rope uh, to record his killings, and there were reportedly 54 knots found on the rope at the time of his death. Yeah, you can find a picture taken of his body several hours after he was killed uh, online if you do enjoy nightmares. And he was only 23 years old when he died. And yeah, and that is how you get a nickname, Bloody Bill. Uh, after Bill's death, Frank James follows Quantrell and his raiders into Kentucky. Jesse takes off with Archie Clement, one of Bloody Bill's lieutenants, a bushwalker known to be especially violent, a very bloody man himself. After a winter of raid and ambush in late 1864 and early 1865, Quantrell's raiders ambushed themselves by Union soldiers at James Wakefield's farm in Kentucky on May 10th, 1865, where many are killed and captured. Uh, Quantrell himself shot twice, paralyzed from the chest down. He soon dies from his wounds in a military hospital the following month. One of the captured guerrillas is Jim Younger, who recently joined the guerrillas, future member of the James Younger gang. Frank James survives the ambush, avoids capture. Uh, Jim Younger is captured. Yeah, but, uh, you know, will again, you know, become free and again, join that gang later for some more banditing. By the spring of 1865, all the principal Confederate armies have now surrendered. And when Union cavalry captures the fleeing Confederate President Jefferson Davis on uh, May 10th, 1865 in Georgia, resistance collapses and the war is now over for, for most. In May of 1865, 17-year-old Jesse rides into Lexington, Missouri, carrying a white flag. He's ready to surrender. He's ready to be done with the war. But the Union troops he's riding towards aren't interested in accepting his surrender this day, and they open fire. He gets shot in the chest for the second time, barely survives, crawling away to safety. His legend now grows further, as does his hatred of the Union. He'll make them pay, and he'll never try surrendering again. 
By early February of 1866, now 18-year-old Jesse has healed up, and Jesse and Frank James meet with Cole Younger to form that gang, the James Younger gang, and plan their first bank robbery. The war is over, but these guys are far from done with fighting. The Jesse, uh, you know, James, the James Younger gang is fucking here. Sunday, 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 Liberty, Missouri. The James Younger gang takes on anyone standing in between them and the Clay County Savings Bank Vaults. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. On February 13th, 1866, over 10 members of the James Younger gang robbed the Clay County Savings Bank in Liberty, Missouri of as much as $62,000, a fortune at the time, equivalent to over a million dollars today. This robbery was the first armed daytime peacetime robbery in U.S. history. The James Younger gang pioneered the Wild West outlaw bank holdup. I didn't know that before this suck. Sadly, a 17-year-old innocent bystander is uh, shot and, you know, killed accidentally during the robbery. On June 7th, or June 13th, 1866, the James brothers helped bust two other former members of Quantrill's Raiders out of a prison in Independence, Missouri. Someone from their gang kills the jailer, Henry Bugler, in order to do so. On October 30th, 1866, five members of the James Younger gang robbed the Alexander Mitchell & Co. Bank in Lexington, Missouri, making out with over $2,000. No one's injured this time. Frank and Jesse said to have been part of this robbery as well. December 16th, the James Younger gang loses one of their tougher members. This little story provides a nice little peek into the type of dudes who inhabited the world that Jesse lived in, the type of people in his orbit. Tough motherfuckers. For the few previous months, Archie Clement, former lieutenant of Bloody Bill Anderson, when he wasn't riding with the James Younger gang, he was leading bushwhackers and voter intimidation campaigns in Missouri. Now that the war was over, politically motivated Confederate bandits focused on the elections of 1866. They did everything they could to make sure that pro-union politicians didn't win any of these elections. Archie and his band of at times well over 100 men were keeping union Republicans from voting at various polls. On election day, the governor of Missouri sent in some militia led by Major Bacon Montgomery to stop Bill and his men in the little town of Lexington, Missouri. And yes, his first name really was Bacon. I'd looked that up a couple sources to verify it. I was like, really, Bacon? I'm sure he was teased more than a few times growing up. Old bacon, old, old thick slice, old maple cured, ran Clement and his men out of town. But then Clement and his men returned on December 13th. Montgomery dispatches some men to arrest Archie, who had went to the city hotel bar for a drink. Archie was wanted for the February 13th James Younger Gang Liberty Bank holdup. The major's men find little Archie uh, drinking with an old friend, call him out to surrender. And Clements, who was only 20 years old, was basically like, nope. Fuck that shit. Draws his revolver, starts shooting. Wild gunfight ensues. Despite getting shot in the chest, Archie manages to make it outside, leaps up onto his horse, and then while riding down the street, a soldier from a militia detachment stationed up on the courthouse shoots him again and knocks him right off the horse. And he's still alive. When Montgomery runs up to Archie, who is badly busted up from the fall, clearly dying from his gunshot wounds, they find him trying to cock his revolver with his teeth so he can keep shooting at him. Legend has it one of the soldiers asked him, or just said to him, Arch, you are dying. What do you want me to do with you? And Clements allegedly re responded with, I've done what I always said I would do. Die before I surrender. And then he did die. Major Montgomery, old, old smoked homestyle bacon himself, later, later stated when recalling Clements' final moments, I've never met better grit on the face of the earth. I mean, these outlaws, 
whether you agree with their tactics or not, you can't disagree with the fact they were tough as fucking nails. March 2nd, 1867, the James Younger Gang robs Judge John McCain Banking House of Savannah, Missouri. On May 22nd, 1867, they rob again. With 12 members this time, the James Younger Gang makes off with 4,000 bucks from the Hughes and Wasson Bank of Richmond, Missouri. Three men shot and killed in this robbery. And then on March 20th, 1868, the gang really pisses off Nimrod. The gang hits the Nimrod Long Banking Co. of Russellville, Kentucky. Uh, and takes off with approximately $14,000. One person's wounded, no fatalities. Nimrod is furious. December 7th, 1869, the James Younger Gang uh, holds up the Davies County Savings Bank of Gallatin, Missouri, killing cashier Captain John W. Sheets, wounding clerk William McDowell as he runs for the door, and they make off with 700 bucks. Jesse James himself believed to have shot and killed Captain John Sheets, mistakenly believing him to be Samuel P. Cox, the militia officer who had killed bloody Bill Anderson. A $3,000 reward offered for their capture. This robbery gets Jesse's face put on some wanted posters, also gets him an unofficial PR agent. Started in late 1869, John Newman Edwards massively contributes to the legend of Jesse James and his gang by writing glorifying articles and dime novels about the guys. Uh, in fact, we actually owe much of our romanticized lore of Jesse James and the James Younger gang to Edward. He's the fellow that wrote the glowing obituary I mentioned at the start of the episode. So let, let's meet him for a sec here. Uh, born in 1839, Edward was a native Virginian who came to Missouri in mid-1850s to work as a newspaper printer. He became a hunting and fishing companion of a man named Joseph Shelby. And when the war broke out and Shelby went out to fight for the Confederacy, Edward served as, as his aide. Part of what may have drawn Edwards to Jesse James and his violent exploits and hatred of the North was that Edwards had fought against the North himself and bravely. He had more horses shot out from under him than any other man in Shelby's command. When the war ended, Shelby and Edwards refused to surrender, crossing over into Mexico, living there in exile for almost two years. Like Jesse, he too had a very hard time accepting a Northern victory. So it should come as no surprise that after he returns to the U.S., Edwards tries to portray armed secessionists as innocent victims of the North and heroes. In 1867, Edwards returns to Missouri, works as a reporter. Soon, he takes on a, the important political role of editor for the recently launched Kansas City Times. Edwards composed a glowing tribute to his former boss called Shelby and his men, and he tries to convince ex-Confederates to get back into politics. When Edwards hears of an ex-bushwhacker named Jesse James, who had used a bank robbery to try and avenge the death of guerrilla leader Bloody Bill Anderson, Edwards is intrigued. He makes contact with the James brothers, and six months after the robbery, the first public statement from Jesse appears in the Kansas City Times. In it, the young outlaw asserts his innocence while simultaneously claiming that the unionists are the real criminals. This jives perfectly with Edward's own beliefs and he begins a campaign to convince the world that Jesse James is not a murderer and a thief, but instead a valiant Confederate hero. A few years later, in the run-up to the election of 1872, Edwards would devote much of his editorial venom to denunciations of Republican President Ulysses Grant's corrupt, tyrannical administration, his words, not mine, and then when he hears of Jesse's daring sunset robbery at the Kansas City Industrial Exposition, which we'll, you know, mention later, Edwards turns his attention back to the fierce rebel in a hyperbolic editorial called The Chivalry of Crime. Edwards said bushwhackers might have sat with Arthur at the round table and called on readers to revere the robbers for the very enormity of their outlawry. Soon, Edwards, who became a leading figure in the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party, would be in full myth-making mode, printing a letter from Jesse in which he made the baseless claim that his gang members rob to the rich and give to the poor, a claim that no serious James historian has ever agreed with. 
1873, Edwards would write a 20-page newspaper supplement glorifying the James Gang. 20 pages devoted to these guys. He uh, later tried to get a bill passed granting Frank and Jesse amnesty for their crimes as well. Okay, now let's go back to 1867 and the James Younger Gang's ongoing crime wave. Uh, and by the way, that does also speak the Edwards stuff to just the culture of the time too, because as much as Edwards revered these guys, he wouldn't be putting out these articles if uh, a good you know portion of his audience didn't agree with him and enjoy what he was writing. So yeah, so let's head. To, so let's take a closer look at some of their members, and then we'll get back into the gang's exploits. Uh, exploits. Many of the members of the James Younger Gang met during the Civil War. Most of them rode together with Quantrell's Raiders. The Younger Brothers actually came from a pro-Union family. Uh, until a band of union-supporting guerrillas known as the Red Legs, so many guerrilla groups, uh, robbed and murdered their father. And that would send them down a path that eventually led them to Quantrill. Quantrill's gang of bushwhacking motherfuckers were involved in a number of similarly deadly conflicts, mostly in Missouri, but also in surrounding states. Most of the gang's members had fought in the Civil War, battle-tested men. The gang consisted, of course, of Jesse and his brother Frank, as well as the younger brothers Jim, John, Bob, and Cole. A lot of outlaws would pop in and out, coming along for a few robberies here, bouncing out for some other abandoned and outlawing and maybe coming back in for a train, ro- train robbery or stagecoach robbery there. They didn't get captured or killed. Some other members included John Jarrett, who was Jesse James' brother-in-law, Clell Miller, Arthur McCoy, Matthew Nelson, Charlie Pitts, Bill Chadwell, and of course, my kin, James Robert Cummins, a.k.a. Jim Cummins, a.k.a. Windy Jim. For real about the Windy nickname. And Jim isn't even the first Western outlaw with the nickname of Windy we've met here in the suck. Way back in Suck 24, the Billy the Kid Suck, we met Frank Windy Cahill, first man Billy murdered. Okay, now let's meet the Younger Brothers. Thomas Coleman Cole Younger was a Confederate guerrilla, one of the leaders of the James Younger gang. Cole was the seventh of 14 children born to Henry Washington and Bersheba Layton Fristo Younger. Uh, he joined William Quantrill's guerrillas in 1861 when he was just 17, took part in the Lawrence, Kansas Raid Massacre of 1863 that left some 200 men and boys dead, and the city ransacked and burned when he was just 19. So young, all these guys, too. 1864, he moved on to serve in the regular Confederate Army and was soon made captain, led his men into Louisiana, later into California, where he remained until the end of the war. After the war, Cole continued to associate with his old war comrades in the midst of the tumultuous reconstruction in Missouri, And out of his own embitterment over the outcome of the war, he went full outlaw. Taking a leadership role in the James Younger gang, he'd participate in a number of bank, train, stagecoach robberies over his crime-laden career, though he would insist until the end of his life that he never robbed a single bank in his beloved Missouri, which I, I don't think was true. The next younger brother is Jim. James Jim Younger, four years younger than his brother Cole, was described as a quiet, well mannered uh, guy, more of a listener than a talker, grew up to follow his brother Cole's footsteps and join Quantrill's Confederate band of pretty much pirates on horses. Jim Younger was later captured by Union troops in the same ambush that resulted in William Quantrill's death. He was sent to Alton Prison in Illinois until the end of the war. Afterwards, he tried his hand at a number of jobs, including starting a horse ranch and serving as a deputy sheriff in Dallas County, Texas in 1870-1871. And then two years later, he joined the James Younger gang. I find that interesting too in these Wild West sucks. How many guys would be law enforcement officers and also outlaw gang members kind of go back and forth. The next younger, John Harrison Younger, three years younger than Jim. John was the 11th of 14 children, again, born to the Younger clan, their poor mother. He was one of the youngest youngers in Youngertown. When brothers Cole and Jim joined William Quantrill's guerrillas during the Civil War, John and his brother Bob were too young and stayed home to look after their mother and sisters. After the war was over, when John and Bob had driven their mother into Independence, Missouri for supplies in January of 1866, a soldier recognized the family and began to make some rude comments about their brother, uh, about his brother Cole. 
When 15-year-old John told him to be quiet, the soldier slapped him on the face with the frozen fish. Seriously, that's what the sources say. This guy slapped his kid with the cold fish in the face. And then John pulled out a revolver and shot that frozen fish slapping son of a bitch right between his eyes. And then to make this story even weirder, after the dead soldier's body was examined, it was revealed that a slingshot had been tied to his wrist. Like he had, he, you know, obviously tied, probably tied to himself. So because he had the slingshot tied to his own wrist, the killing was ruled as self-defense, you know, because the guy had a weapon on him. So no charges were filed against John. The whole thing, such a weird little story there. Sheriff, John Younger just shot a soldier right between the eyes, killed him dead. Well, damn it, deputy, stop talking to me and go arrest him. Sheriff, the soldier uh, did slap him in the face with a fish. Well, that's no provocation for murder. Arrest him at once. Sheriff, that fish was frozen. Frozen? Huh. Well, I guess that's different then, isn't it? When you slap a man with a frozen fish in the face, you're practically begging for a bullet. But we're still going to need to bring him a trial, so you need to go grab. Uh, Sheriff, the soldier did have a slingshot tied to his wrist. Really? Slingshot tied to his wrist. And he slapped. He slapped down with a frozen fish in the face? Well, all right. I recollect I don't really see a crime here anymore. Why don't you tell John hello and uh, tell his mom a good day and, and thanks for filling me in. Uh, then we have Bob Younger, Robert Bob Ewing Younger, 13th of the 14 kids, youngest boy, two years younger than John, and even younger, younger, the younger, youngers were young, so many youngers, and why, I can, whatever, uh, <laughs> during the war. He witnessed his father being killed by Union soldiers and his home burned to the ground. After his brothers formed the James Younger Gang, he would join and spend the next 10 years robbing banks, trains, and stagecoaches along across Missouri, Kansas, and other nearby states before finally getting caught, spending his final years in prison where he, like a lot of 19th century prisoners, would die of TB, a.k.a. consumption. And I'm just blown away by how many people in the story have backstories where, you know, like their parents or family members were killed by either Confederate or Union soldiers. I mean, in this particular story, by a lot of Union soldiers and just like places burned to the ground. That, that's not how you win over locals. That's not how you get them to your, that's not how you win hearts and minds by just fucking killing their parents and burning their shit to the ground. That's how you create outlaws. That's how you create, you know, the, the equivalent of uh, uh, terrorists. Now let's talk a little more about that little tough son of a bitch we met earlier. Gang member Archibald J, little Archie Clement. Archie joined the Confederate guerrillas under Captain William Bloody Bill Anderson in 1861. By the time he was 17, he'd already become a lieutenant. He was a very small man, weighing just about 130 pounds, standing just over five feet tall. He made up for his smaller stature with fearlessness and his quick and accurate pistol shot. He quickly took a prominent role in Anderson's military operations, including that bloody raid on Lawrence, Kansas. Clement also participated in the Centralia, Missouri massacre where 23 Union soldiers were robbed and shot. When Bloody Bill Anderson was killed by Union forces on October 26, 1864, Clement took command of the unit until the war was over. And after the war, Clement continued to create problems for the government by intimidating voters in elections and becoming part of what would be the James Junker gang. And he would lead the gang into that first robbery that resulted in an estimated $62,000 worth of cash and bonds before having those tough last words. Uh, before moving on to more gang exploits, let's go over three more members. Arthur C. McCoy was a James Younger gang member born in Ireland in 1825. McCoy immigrated to the United States, first settled in California during the gold rush. By the 1850s, he was living in St. Louis, Missouri, where he worked as a coppersmith. By 1855, McCoy married Louisa Gibson, and the couple would eventually have five children. He then formed a partnership and started a painting business called Farmer and McCoy. During the Civil War, he became a captain under Confederate General Joe Shelby and was said to have worked as a spy 
After the war, he would join with the James Younger Gang, where he would be a consistent member until the late 1870s, where he suddenly vanishes from the history books. Uh, Jesse and Frank's brother-in-law, Alan H. Palmer, also rode with the James Boys for years. Born and raised in Missouri, Palmer rode with William Quantrell during the Civil War, was paroled with Frank James in Kentucky at the war's end, one of the first members. He would join the gang immediately after it formed. Palmer also uh, snuck in a little schooling when he wasn't pointing a pistol at someone and demanding money, attending Bryant and Stratton's Business College in St. Louis in 1867 and 1868. <laughs> that just cracks me up for some reason, too. Just, hey, hey, Palmer, how are you paying for tuition? Don't worry about none. Come on, Palmer, you ain't have no regular job. Your folks ain't rich. How you paying? Click. I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> all right, Palmer. All right, Palmer. Sheesh, man, stop pointing that gun on me. Uh, Palmer was a killer. According to some of the men who were there, he killed more men during that Lawrence massacre than anyone else. On November 24th, 1870, Palmer married Susan Lavinia James, sister of Frank and Jesse James, and the couple would have six children. And he hardly ever talked to Jesse and Frank about fucking their sister. Like, it rarely came up. He rarely kind of went there. Uh, last up, Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy. Jim Cummins was born and raised in Clay County, Missouri, near Frank and Jesse James. They were close friends, fought for the Confederate militia together during the war. The Quantrill Raiders roster lists a James A. Cummins and a James Robert Cummings. They're likely the same person. I get it. You know, I get mail as both Dan Cummins and Dan Cummings. Sometimes I get mail as Don Cummings. Uh, Jim was a founding member of the James Younger Gang, also had fought previously for Archie Clemens. Uh, some also believe Cummins was a Knight of the Golden Circle, a super racist pro-slavery organization that wanted to annex a golden circle of territories in Mexico, Central America, the Confederate States, and the Caribbean, and then turn the whole area into a nation built on slavery to be led by Maximilian I, some Austrian dude who was briefly the emperor of Mexico from 1864 to 1867. Jesus, Uncle Jim, this is, this is awkward. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me, Uncle Windy Jimmy. Uh, random note about Uncle Windy Jim. He became a farmer in Arkansas after the breakup of the James Gang and still a wanted man. And then he tried to turn himself into authorities on several occasions, but they didn't believe who he claimed he was. <laughs> they just, just several times. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm Jim. I did it. You can arrest me. And they're like, yeah, get out of here. I mean, can you imagine how weird that would be? I mean, feel good on one, in one sense, but also just kind of embarrassing. You commit a bunch of crimes. You get away with them. You know, you feel bad. Your conscience gets you. And then you go, go to turn yourself in. They're like, get out of here. Get out of here, you goofball. No, no, but really, I, I killed some, I killed some men and I, I want to, I want to do what's right, and I want to serve my time. I stole a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure you did, Cotton Top. And I, and I stuck my finger in Queen Mary's ass. Go, go on, get out of here, you silly old crank. Go on, get. Uh, Jim would publish a book about his life and crimes in 1903 with the absolutely terrible title of Jim Cummins' book written by himself, the life story of the James and Younger gang and their comrades, including the operations of Quantrell's guerrillas by one who rode with them, a true but terrible tale of outlawry. Jesus Christ. It was fucking no editors back then. You can, you can buy the hardcover edition on Amazon of this book for $600. Not kidding. And it doesn't exist in any other format because I'm guessing there's zero demand for it because I'm also guessing it is fucking terrible. Damn it, Uncle Jimmy. You've embarrassed me. You're embarrassing me again. If only Uncle Wendy Jim could have had access to our next sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you today by renowned author Randy Schock and his master course in how to write pretty good book titles and everything else really, really well. Let Randy explain how he will teach you to become a master writer 
in his own words. Hello, this is an ad for Randy Shock. I am Randy Shock. I wrote this. Randy Shock wrote this himself, me, to teach others, you, to write really well, period. I have written many books with good titles that I enjoyed to write. Nephilim Anunnaki and the Greys, Planet Drifter 957. That is one of my books. Not kidding. It is about what I just said a moment ago. I thought of that book and many other fine, fun, to-read titles at the YMCA. Do you know Jim Torben? I saw him there once. He used to work at Wendy's, but something happened, I think. Do you know Paul Harvey? He's dead now. He was my dad's best friend. I used to answer the police phone. Okay, time to wrap up. It's sunny out and I want to be done now. See you later. Oh, Randy Shock. Still cracking up, cracking up about the guy from last episode. Uh, let's get to one last real sponsor now. Times Like is brought to you once again by longtime supporter of the show, Lisa. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. And they believe that everybody has the right to rest. That's why they make two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. The all-foam Lisa mattress is new and improved, featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. I'm one of those. Their Sapira hybrid mattress is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa donates one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. They've already donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofit organizations. And I saw on Instagram the other day that some more time suckers got a Lisa mattress. Hail Nimrod. I hope you all love your mattress as much as Lindsay and I love ours. No better place to snuggle up with our fur tyrants, Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell, than on the Lisa, which they pretty much own now. Get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck and use promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A, L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck, link in that episode description. Now to wrap up a few more James Younger gang member mentions before we get back into their exploits. Other members of the James uh, you know, Younger gang include uh, Alexander Donovan Donnie Pence, his brother Tom, Thomas Edward Bud Pence, Redmond Red uh, Munkers, Charlie uh, Pitts, the Shepherd Brothers George and Oliver, and Charles Fletcher Taylor. Almost all these men, again, uh, soldiers of the Confederacy, Confederacy. Also, almost all of them had rode with William Quantrell. Now back to the timeline. The uh, James Younger gang just kept on misbehaving. June 3rd, 1871, four members of the James Younger gang robbed the Okabach Brothers Bank of Corridon, Iowa, taking $6,000, well over $100,000 in today's currency. No one gets hurt this time, but the Pinkertons get called in. Remember those pioneer detectives from Suck 116? Agency founder Alan Pinkerton dispatches his son, Robert Pinkerton, uh, who joins a county sheriff in tracking the gang to a farm in Civil Bend, Missouri, uh, Missouri, where a shootout ensues, but the gang escapes. Went full Southern there for Missouri. On June 24th, 1871, Jesse James wrote a letter to the Kansas City Times claiming Republicans were persecuting him for his Confederate loyalties by accusing him and Frank of carrying out these robberies. Writing, but I don't care what the degraded radical party thinks about me. I would just assume they would think I was a robber as not. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesse's willingness to help create his own legend. 
and his lack of truthfulness, his willingness to uh, put out some propaganda, he was a bank robber. Him and his buddies weren't given the money they took to any pro-Confederacy causes. And in many cases, the people who lost their money were also Confederate sympathizers. On April 29th, 1872, the James Younger gang robs the Bank of Columbia in Columbia, Kentucky, killing cashier R.A.C. Martin when he refuses to open the safe. The gang made off with another $6,000. Then on September 26th, 1872, Jesse Frank and one other member of the gang robbed the Kansas City Exposition ticket office and get away with eight grand. During a struggle with the ticket seller, a young girl is shot. Luckily, she would live. Hurting the girl bothers Jesse enough to write a letter into the Kansas City Times. On October 15, 1872, a letter is published by the Kansas City Times. And while it wasn't signed by Jesse James, historians fully believe he wrote it. And he wrote, As a great deal has been said in regard to the robbery which occurred at the Kansas City Exposition Grounds, I will give a few lines to the public, as I am one of the party who perpetrated the deed. A great many say that we, the robbers, deserve hanging. What have we done to be hung for? It is true that I shot a little girl, though it was not intentional. And I am very sorry that the child was shot. And if the parents will give me their address through the columns of the Kansas City Weekly Times, I will send them money to pay her doctor's bill. And as to Mr. Wallace, I never tried to kill him. I only shot to make him let go of my friend. If I'd been so disposed, I could have shot him dead. Just let a party of men commit a bold robbery. And the cries hang them. But President Ulysses Grant and his party can steal millions. And it is all right. It is true. We are robbers. But we always rob in the glare of the day and in the teeth of the multitude. And we never kill only in self-defense. Without men refuse to open their vaults and safes to us. And when they refuse to unlock to us, we kill. Uh, interesting rationalization here. You know, just, do we kill? Yeah, no, yeah, we do. But only... In self-defense, it's almost like he doesn't know what self-defense means. When I point my gun at a bank teller and I tell him to open up the vault and give me all that goddamn money, and he says that he doesn't know the combination or that he won't do it for some other reason, I feel threatened. I suddenly feel very unsafe. And then I feel compelled to defend myself by shooting that dumb son of a bitch between the eyes and then pointing my gun to someone else and ask them to give me that goddamn money. And I feel that my life is in danger once again if they refuse to cooperate with me. Nothing makes me feel more unsafe than someone refusing to give me all their goddamn money. Uh, Jesse's letter, or at least the letter thought to be written by Jesse, continues. But a man who is goddamn enough fool to refuse to open a safe or a vault when he is covered with a pistol ought to die. There is no use for a man to try to do anything when an experienced robber gets to go on him. If he gives the alarm or resists or refuses to unlock, he gets killed. And if he obeys, he is not hurt in the flesh, but he is in the purse. All right. I, I, he seems a little more self-aware there. Some editors call us thieves. We are not thieves. We are bold robbers. It hurts me very much to be called a thief. It makes me feel like they were trying to put me on par with President Grant and his party. We are bold robbers, and I'm proud for the name. For Alexander the Great was a bold robber, and Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte, and Sir William Wallace, not old Ben Wallace and Robert Emmett. Please rank me with these and not with the Granites. Grant's party has no respect for anyone. They rob the poor and rich, and we rob the rich and give to the poor. As to the author of the letter, the public will never know. I will close by hoping that Horace Greedy will defeat Grant, and that I can make an honest living, and that I will not have to rob as taxes will not be so heavy. Again, <laughs> Interesting rationalization. I mean, yeah. I mean, sure. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't have to rob if it wasn't for you know heavy high taxes. 
How am I supposed to pay the taxes without, you know, holding up banks and stagecoaches and trains? And I like that he claims to be a freedom fighter like William Wallace. You know, but he's but he's not waging war against the union. He's just taking random people's money. He's not hurting the government. He's he's attacking private businesses. He once was a political fighter. Now he feels a little bit like a like a thief in a revolutionary's, you know, clothing. Uh, May 27th, 1873, four members of the James Younger gang steal four, four, ah, $4,100 from the St. Genevieve Savings Bank of St. Genevieve, Missouri. No one's killed or injured in the robbery. The Union government also not injured. No loot given to any Confederate revolutionary cause. After the heist, the gang steps up their gang from bank robberies to train robberies. The James Younger gang robs their first train near Adair, Iowa, July 21st, 1873. During the robbery, the wreck... Uh, they wrecked the Chicago, Rock Island, and Pacific Railroad train, overturned the engine. The train engineer died in the accident, and the gang made off with $3,000 from passengers and funds retrieved from the express car. And it was the first train robbery of the Wild West, the first to occur west of the Mississippi. Journalist John Duman Edwards published uh, that glowing 20-page story on the gang after this robbery. On January 15, 1874, Jesse James and four members of the gang robbed their first stagecoach near Hot Springs, Arkansas. Beautiful place, by the way. Uh, they took cash and jewels valued at approximately $3,000. No one was injured. Years later, after Jesse's death, a gold watch taken from one of the stage passengers would be found amongst his effects. On January 31st, 1874, five to seven members of the Younger James Gang hold up the St. Louis Iron Mountain and Southern Railroad train at Gads Hill, Missouri. No one's injured, and they make off with $12,000. In early 1874, after the Gads Hill, Missouri train robbery, the Adams Express Company begs the Pinkertons to please... Bring the brothers Frank and Jesse James to justice, finally. Express companies were paid to carry valuables on the railroads, and they, rather than the train companies, typically suffered the largest losses during robberies. Pinkerton accepted the assignment and sent one of his detectives to Clay County, Missouri, to investigate and make another attempt to capture the James brothers. On March 10, 1874, Pinkerton agent Joseph Witcher arrives in Clay County, Missouri to do a little reconnaissance. And then if you recall uh, us going over this and the Pinkerton suck, you know that this mission goes really, really bad for Agent Witcher. Witcher planned to go to the James farm and become acquainted with Jesse and Frank and then capture them. And he's warned before he does this by a local sheriff that that old woman's relda will kill you if the boys don't. The next day, his dead body is discovered. He'd been shot three times. It's thought the gang member Arthur C. McCoy was his killer, but more fun maybe to think Zarelda did it. Witcher's death scares off the express company, but not the old abolitionist Pinkerton, who vows vengeance on the outlaws. Uh, you know, he's saying, there is no use talking. They must die. That's what he wrote regarding the James brothers. Pretty direct. I gotta say, I like Pinkerton's style. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words. How, sh how should we deal with the James brothers, Alan? They must die. All right, then. Uh, the following month, when Pinkerton's men are on their trail, Jesse uh, marries his longtime love, Zerelda. Yep. April 23rd, 1874, Jesse James marries his blood relation. Now, this motherfucker uh, didn't fuck his mother, but he probably had already been fucking his first cousin, who he's now getting married to, and they wanted to make their union legal. They could now legally try to have beautiful, two-headed, three-armed incest gremlins. On April 23rd, 1874, Jesse marries his cousin Zerelda, Zerelda Amanda Mims in Kansas City, Missouri, a woman named after his own mother because, you know, she was her aunt. Now she would be her mother-in-law aunt, not backwoods at all. Hawk folk, dog folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They ding dong ding dong ding dong ding ding dong 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 ding dong. I picture that being played at the wedding. Don't meet a lot of Zerelda's these days, by the way. I did find a few on Instagram. Doubt we'll ever, doubt we'll ever have another suck though, featuring two different Zerelda's in the same story. 
What's short for Zelda? Zer? Elda? Zelda? Did they inspire The Legend of Zelda? Was that a game about incest? I'm getting way off track. James, James and Zerelda Elda Zelda have been engaged for nine years while the James Younger gang was in full swing. So they for sure did it. Who could stay engaged that long and not do it other than maybe Tim Tebow? On their wedding day, Jesse stood tall and slim, his dark hair neatly combed, his hazel eyes peering out from under dark eyebrows. Zerelda, a beautiful woman, high cheekbones. Uh, they made for a very attractive couple. As about 50 of their mutual friends assembled for the occasion. The ceremony was performed by Jesse's uncle, William, who's a Methodist minister and who I'm guessing was also Zerelda's second or third cousin or some shit. Incest trees have very confusing branches. After the wedding, the newlyweds honeymoon in Galveston, Texas. It's also said in a handful of Jesse James biographies that he took his gang with him on the honeymoon and they robbed a stagecoach. What a, what a workaholic. Work, work, work. Also, while getting some of that sweet first cousin loving down in the Gulf of Mexico, a reporter from the St. Louis Dispatch does what the Pinkertons do not. Tracks down Jesse James. The reporter asks, why would a woman marry the world's most notorious outlaw? And according to what Jesse told the Dispatch reporter that day in Galveston, it was love. So also a romantic. And again, because Zerelda had the same name as Jesse's mom, she would go by uh, a, uh, an abbreviated version from then on, uh, Z. That, that does sound better than Elda. Or Zelda. Uh, Z would go on to become a strong woman who was also a gentle, gentle, loving wife and mother, fiercely loyal and trustworthy. She also would never take part in any aspect of her husband's criminal exploits. A little more than a year later, the young couple assumes the aliases uh, of Dave and Josie Howard, and they settle in Edgefield, Tennessee, on the north bank of the Cumberland River across from Nashville. Jesse decides to give honest living a try for the first time in his life. Ha! <laughs> JK! OMG! He kept pointing guns at strangers and threatening to kill them if they didn't give him all his goddamn money. <laughs> LOL! YOLO. Uh, the same month Jesse gets married. In April of 1874, his gang robs a stagecoach in Austin, Texas. Then on June 6th of 1874, Frank James gets married as well to Annie Ralston in Omaha, Nebraska. Annie was the daughter of a wealthy Independence, Missouri businessman named Samuel Ralston. Perhaps Frank's one-time desire to be a teacher, his penchant for intellectual pursuits attracted him to Miss Ralston, who was working as a school teacher when she met and married him. Now that both of them were married, the James boys were really done with thieving for good. JK, the end of the robbing and raiding was still TBD, IMHO, ROFL, TTYL. Two months later, on August 30th, 1874, the Waverly-Lexington omnibus stagecoach robbery blamed on the James gang. Yeah, they're not close to done. A few months later, on December 7th, the Tishomingo Savings Bank robbery in Corinth, Mississippi, also blamed on the James Younger gang. 10,000 taken from the bank, no one injured. However, uh, the, the blame for this robbery does seem somewhat unlikely as the James Younger gang robbed a train in Kansas the very next day. So maybe they did that one, maybe not. December 8th, 1874, the gang commits one of their largest heists. The Kansas Pacific Railroad in Muncie, Kansas, was held up by Jesse and his cohorts, which made them $55,000 richer, no fatalities or injuries, but 55 grand, equating to well over a million dollars in today's money. How are they going to, you know, spend it all? All those fucking meddling Pinkertons are around trying to track them down. Surveillance of the James farm was becoming an ongoing issue because of the Pinkertons. In January of 1875, a Pinkerton agent named Jack Ladd was posing as a field hand at work on the farm across the road from the James farm. The farm belonging to a neighbor, Dan Eskew, served as a hideout for, the, for this Pinkerton spy. Undercover work, one of the uh, many types of detective work the Pinkertons uh, pioneered, if you remember that from that suck. Well, one afternoon, this agent thinks he spots Jesse and Frank at the farmhouse and contacts other Pinkerton agents to come in and raid the James farm. Ladies and 
gentlemen, are you ready for tonight's championship match? Welcome to Clay County, Missouri. It's a showdown years in the making. Prepare to get struck by lightning because the Pinkertons are bringing down the thunder. They're taking on the world champion stagecoach training bank, Robbers, the James brothers, Frank and Jesse, who lives, who dies, who rains the most bullets down from the sky. Except there wouldn't be a showdown because Agent Ladd fucked up. He was wrong and members of the James family would pay the price for his error in judgment. On January 26, 1875, thinking that the James brothers were hiding out at the family farm, six Pinkerton agents surround their mother's home near Kearney, Missouri. In an effort to lure them out, the agents toss a smoke bomb into the house. And then Jesse and Frank's nine-year-old half-brother, Archie Samuel, thinking it was a loose stick from the fire, tosses it back into the fireplace where it explodes. Whoops. The explosion kills a young boy, wounds Jesse and Frank's mother, Zerelda, uh, wounds her right hand and arm so badly, she later, to have, uh, later had most of her right arm amputated. This attack, as you can imagine, a little bit of a PR nightmare for the Pinkertons. They don't catch the James brothers. They do kill an innocent boy, almost kill their mother, who never robbed anyone. The people in the press in Missouri rally against the Pinkertons, rally behind Jesse and Frank James. They were seen not as criminals, but as victims of violence dealt out by union thugs. The James brothers don't waste any time avenging the death of their half-brother and their attack on their mother. Less than three months later, on April 12th, 1875, Dan Askew, the neighbor who had sheltered Jack Ladd, the Pinkerton spy, found dead with a bullet in his brain in his home. Later that same month, Pinkerton undercover agent Jack Ladd also found shot and killed. After Ladd's death, the Pinkertons give up their pursuit of the James brothers for good, which is pretty crazy. The, 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 the Pinkertons are like, ah, we're fucking done. Enough. Enough with these assholes. Amidst this chaos, Jesse and Z have their first child, Jesse Edwards James, born on August 31st, 1875. Jesse is a father for the first time at only 27 years old. Amazing how all this has happened. He's only 27 years old. Fatherhood does nothing to slow down his crime spree. He was a career criminal for sure. On September 7th, 1875, the James Younger Gang robs the Huntington Bank in Huntington, West Virginia. Another cool place. uh, Making off with somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 bucks. New gang member, Tom McDaniel, shot and killed. Another new member, Tom Webb, caught trying to escape with the money. Another big score for the gang occurs on July 7th, 1876, when they robbed the Missouri Pacific Railroad train in Rocky Cup, Missouri, take $15,000. If you're keeping track, the James Younger gang have been robbing and raiding for 10 years now, and they haven't lost any of the Youngers or the James brothers. But then that changes in September of 1876. The good luck of the James Younger gang comes to an end with their infamous failed attempt to rob the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota on September 7th. Acting bank cashier Joseph Lee Haywood refuses to open the safe and ducks down, and Jesse doesn't care for that. He feels threatened. It scares him. He doesn't feel safe, and he needs to clearly defend himself. He had been very fucking clear in that letter. Jesse put a pistol to the cashier's head, shoots him dead. And the shot is heard beyond the bank. And when the bank alarm goes off, Northfield citizens respond by opening fire upon the gang. Two Northfield citizens killed in the shootout. Gang members, Charlie Pitts and Bill Chaldwell, uh, shot and killed. Bill Chadwell, excuse me, Cole, Jim, Bob Younger, all shot, but managed to escape briefly. Due to their wounds, they're a lot easier to track. All three are captured over the next two weeks. Frank and Jesse escape, make it back to Missouri unharmed, but their gang is over. With the younger brothers gone, rather than give up on crime, the gang becomes a James gang. And they just take on a little, uh, you know, raiding intermission, lay low in Tennessee for a while, but they'll get back to crime here shortly. Cole and Jim Younger would both spend the next 25 years in the Minnesota Territorial Prison in Stillwater. 
Paroled in 1901, Jim Younger becomes engaged, but is not allowed to get married due to the terms of his parole, and he kills himself in a hotel room in 1902 at the age of 54. Cole would reunite with Frank James and toured the South with Frank in a Wild West show called the Cole Younger and Frank James Wild West Company. Bob would die of tuberculosis, as I mentioned earlier, at the age of 35 in 1889 in prison. As the turmoil ensues around them, the James brothers still live in their domestic lives. On February 6, 1878, Robert Franklin James, Frank and Annie's only child, is born at Frank's Walton Farm near Nashville. On June 17, 1879, Mary Susan James, born to Jesse and Z James. Mary was named after Jesse's sister, uh, Susan and Z's mother, Mary. Shortly after the birth of Mary Susan, Jesse and Frank recruit new gang members and get right back to Robin and Raiden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On October 8th, 1879, the Chicago, Alton, and St. Louis train at, the Glendale in, at Glendale, Missouri, robbed by the James gang of about 10,000 bucks, over $200,000 in today's money. The following year, September 3rd, 1880, the brothers make off with 1,800 bucks from a stagecoach in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. In February of 1881, B.J. Woodson, a Frank James alias, rents a house for $8 a month on Fatherland Street in Nashville, Tennessee. A man by the name of John Davis Howard, a Jesse James alias, comes to visit. These brothers are continually planning new heists. In March of 1881, $5,200 is taken from a paymaster as he leaves a bank in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The James Gang is blamed. On July 15, 1881, the James Gang robs the Chicago, Rock Island, Pacific Railroad train near Winston, Missouri of 2,000 bucks. In an altercation during the robbery, Frank murders a man named Frank McMillan and also the train conductor, William Westfall. The gang robs another train that September. They hold up the Chicago and Alton train at Blue Cut near Glendale, Missouri on September 7th. They make off with $3,000 in cash and then take jewelry from the passengers. On Christmas Eve in 1881, a man named Tom Howard, actually Jesse James, and his family rent a house on Lafayette Street in St. Joseph, Missouri. With the $10,000 reward over his head, Z tries to get Jesse to take on a more normal life. Jesse agrees, but only after one last bank robbery, just one more, in Platte County, Missouri. Jesse had finally decided to retire, allegedly, but as the cliche goes, he just wanted one more score. He hopes to come away with enough money to become a gentleman farmer. He plans the robbery with Bob and Charles Ford, young brothers and recent gang members who Jesse had worked with a bit in the past. The Ford brothers visit the James home in St. Joseph on the morning of April 3rd, 1882. Bob Ford, with his brother Charles, enters Jesse's home at about 8.27 a.m. While outlining his plans for the robbery with Bob and Charles in the parlor of his home, Jesse notices that a framed needlepoint picture done by his mother was hanging crookedly on the wall. Jesse turns his back to the Ford brothers, straightens the picture, and then he hears the sound of Bob Ford cocking his pistol. He starts to turn around, and as he turns around, Bob shoots Jesse James in the back. Shoots him right below the ear, killing him instantly. So, I mean, he shoots him in the back as far as his back is turned. Doesn't actually literally shoot him in the back. Shoots him in the uh, head. Jesse's body hits the wall, falls to the floor, ends up lying on his back, dead before he makes it to the ground. Word quickly spreads throughout the town that Jesse James, world-famous outlaw, has just been assassinated. He was only 34 years old. At the sound of the gunshot, Jesse's children run into the room. How sad is that? His wife, Z, follows. She desperately tries to stop the blood pouring out of her husband's head. Bob Ford leaves as Z runs in. Charles spends a few moments trying to tell her how the gun had gone off accidentally. Then he too makes a quick exit and runs after his brother. After his death, Jesse, packed on ice, taken by train to Kearney, where he is displayed and viewed by hundreds of friends, admirers, curiosity seekers, because that's what people used to do, as we've learned here on The Suck previously. 
Fucking weird. 19th, 19th, uh, you know, in early 20th century, people used to love to look at the dead bodies of criminals. And I bet people do the same thing today if they could. I mean, get out of here. If, if Ed Kemper, you know, died next week, how many people do you think would pay a hundred bucks or more to come check out his dead body? I'm guessing thousands and thousands. Just why mother? Why must they stare? Man, my zapples would be getting real stick happy if I was still alive. Boy, how do you really want to fuck their necks? Uh, later, Jesse was buried on the farm in a, in a plot, the family farm, in a plot near the house so that Zerelda could keep an eye out for trespassers or souvenir hunters coming over to dig him up. In no time, word spread of the shooting and crowds indeed began to gather around the home, talking incessantly about the killing of the notorious outlaw. Young Jesse Jr., who was six at the time, didn't even know who Jesse James was. He thought his dad was John Davis Howard. He thought his own name was Tim Howard, all these aliases. So why did 21-year-old Bob Ford kill his former gang leader? For two reasons. The first was that Ford had killed a man by the name of Wood Height in January of 1882 and sought a pardon for it. When word of the shooting resulted in Ford's arrest, he informed the officers that he had access to the much more wanted Jesse James. And Missouri's new governor, Thomas Crittenden, such a, it's got a fucking weird name. Critten, Critten Den doesn't flow off the tongue. Let's call him Thomas Critter from here on. Governor Critter. Uh, Governor Critter, who was sick of Jesse's outlaw antics, secretly cut Ford a deal. Kill Jesse James and get a pardon. Teeny weeny bit illegal. But that's how bad he wanted Jesse dead. He would let a murderer get away with murder if that murderer murdered one more time. The second reason was the reward. Some railroad and express companies had come together and collectively offered $10,000 for Jesse's capture, dead or alive. Meanwhile, some of Jesse's other gang members had been killed or captured in the face of, you know, Governor Critter's relentless pursuit. Ironically, Jesse thought the Ford brothers were the last two people he could trust. Before his death at Bob's hand, Jesse had been getting increasingly paranoid and his gang was falling apart. Had he not been shot by Ford, Someone highly, you know, highly likely someone else would have would have shot him soon or he would have been captured. Jesse recently killed gang member Ed Miller out of paranoia, also scared away Jim Cummins after he began to suspect Cummins of treachery. God damn it, Uncle Wendy! Ah, why do you continue to humiliate me? First you're a shitty author, and now you're treacherous. A few weeks before Bob shot him, James had invited the Ford brothers to move into his new home in St. Joseph. The Fords said yes, waited for their chance to strike. Initially, Ford was charged with murdering both Wood Height and Jesse James, but then true to his word, Governor Critter uh, paroled him while he stood trial for murder. As for the reward money, he received only a fraction of the reward. Damn dirty dealing railroad tycoons. Returning to their hometown of Richmond, Missouri, Bob and Charles not greeted kindly. Residents found the killing of Jesse James distasteful, and they made life unbearable for the two brothers. Charles Ford fled Richmond when he heard that Frank James was searching for them to kill them in revenge for his brother's death. And Charles kept running from town to town for the next two years, changing his name several times. The stress of wondering if Frank would find him or not and the beginning of symptoms of consumption led to an addiction to morphine. And then Charles committed suicide two years after Jesse's murder in 1884. Bob Ford did not run or hide. He initially uh, tried to capitalize on the notoriety he gained for his betrayal of Jesse, taken to the stage, appearing in a stage show titled Outlaws of Missouri. For several nights, Ford retold his story, carefully omitting the part about, you know, James' uh, backs being turned. Uh, when he shot him, his charade was short-lived as he was greeted with catcalls, jeers, hoots, and challenges. He then for a short time posed for pictures in those low-brow dime museums we've talked about in previous sucks as the man who killed Jesse James. People could come to these little curiosity, carny-type places and get a picture with Bob Ford. Ford left Missouri, traveling all the way to Las Vegas, New Mexico, then to Creed, Colorado, where he was shot down in his own saloon 
on June 8, 1892 by a man named Edward O'Kelly. O'Kelly walked into Bob's saloon with a shotgun. Ford's back was to Ed as Ed said, hello, Bob. And when Ford turned around, O'Kelly emptied both barrels of the shotgun, killing Ford and becoming known as the man who killed Robert Ford. Ford was initially buried in Colorado, but his body was later moved and reinterred at Richmond Cemetery in Ray County, Missouri. The man who shot Jesse James is inscribed on his tombstone. He was 32 years old when he was gunned down. When Jesse died, most people assumed that he had left a wealthy widow in Z, but that was not the case at all. In fact, the only valuables that they owned were a few weapons, a bit of stolen jewelry, and some assorted memorabilia. In late April of 1882, the distraught Z. James was forced to sell to sell almost all of her and her husband's possessions to earn money, and then she and her children moved in with her brother in Kansas City. Uh, donning only black clothing for the rest of her days, poor Z never remarried and became a recluse, which is exactly what I want Lindsay to do if I die. No, that's terrible. I want Reverend Dr. Joe Horscock Johnson to, to look after her, but never touch her. Do not fucking ever touch her. Anyway, young Jesse James Jr., forced to go work at the age of 11 to help support his mother and little sister. Uh, I do want my son Kyler to go to work if I pass soon. And the doodles, Penny and Ginger. I want, I want all fucking all three of those candy asses to go work. They could all toughen up a little bit. Though the family suffered emotionally and financially for the rest of Z's life, she refused all offers to publish books or any information regarding Jesse's life. She was a good wife and a good first cousin. She was a super, as far as first cousin wives go, really up top shelf, one of the best. On October 5th, 1882, a defeated Frank James surrenders to Missouri Governor Critter. After fighting and raiding since May of 1861, after over 20 years of being hunted, he wanted it to be over. Frank would incredibly be acquitted of all charges and live as a free man until 1915 when he died at the age of 72. He died where he was, excuse me, where he was born, Clay County, Missouri, spending the final few years of his life after working odd jobs all over the West, touring with Cole Younger in that stage show throughout the South, and then giving tours of the James family farm. And how crazy is that? He spent the last couple of years of his life giving a tour of the farm. <laughs> the dude robbed and murdered for years and then gave tours of where he grew up. I mean, that really is pretty similar to like letting the Unabomber out of prison and then having Ted Kaczynski move back to Montana and just give tours of the cabin where he made all the bombs. And here's where I made my first bomb. I was sitting right there when I found out I'd blown up and killed my first person. <laughs> uh, I was eating a sandwich. I was eating a ham sandwich and thinking about how much I hated technology. Uh, Z. James, in a deep depression ever since her husband Jesse's death, dies on November 13th, 1900. Z would be buried at the Mount Olivet Cemetery in Kearney, Missouri. Zerelda Samuel, mother of Jesse and Frank, dies of a heart attack at the age of 86 on February 10th, 1911. She is buried at the Mount Olivet Cemetery. Four years later, February 18th, 1915, Frank James dies at the age of 72. And then just over a year later, Cole Younger dies on March 21st, 1916, the last living former leader of the notorious James Younger outlaw gang. And while that is the end of this time sub timeline, it is not the end of today's story. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what is there left to talk about regarding Jesse James? How about the rumor that he faked his own death and lived long after Bob Ford supposedly killed him. Mm -hmm. Hello, wrestling fans! Are you ready for tonight's main event? Jesse James takes on the Grim Reaper! Move over, Kane! Step aside, Undertaker! The Outlaw takes on Death! 
Can the man, the myth, the legend kill his own assassination? Find out in tonight's cage match, refereed by none other than Albert Fish. Showbiz, that's how they do it in Hollywood. But seriously, did he fake his own death? The whole shot in the back while straightening out a picture thing was just far too mundane for the rabid Jesse Jams, Jesse Jams, Jesse Jams, and the under, uh, (laughs) for the rabid Jesse Jams fans to accept and conspiracies sprung up almost immediately regarding James not actually being shot. According to a man named J. Frank Dalton, Jesse James for sure faked his death. In the spring of 1948, the elderly Dalton claimed Jesse James was still alive and well and living in a cabin just outside the Merrimack Caverns in Missouri. And how did Dalton know? Well, because Dalton claimed to be Jesse James. And if you're thinking, wouldn't that make him like 100 years old? Yeah, yeah, it would. And I should know before examining this possibility that when James died, the scars from his multiple gunshot wounds to the chest and missing middle finger helped the police identify his body. So case closed, right? I mean, he's for sure dead, right? Not necessarily, not for some. Some think Dalton really was Jesse James. Dalton really was born around the same time as James, possibly exactly the same time. He was actually 100 years old, or possibly if he was lying, just a, just a bit older. And his body appeared to have been through hell. He had several bullet wounds, a rope uh, burn around his neck, a collapsed lung, a damaged fingertip. For some who met him, his wounds were consistent with Jesse James' wounds. At the very least, it does seem Dalton had been uh, a pro-Confederate guerrilla in World War, uh, in Civil World War II, in the Civil War. Dude probably didn't shoot himself to get all those scars. Dalton died at the age of 103 on August 15th, 1951 in Granbury, Texas. And his death certificate was recorded with the name of the man he claimed to be, but that doesn't make him Jesse James. So how did he say he faked his own death? Well, here's what he claims happened. He says the real murder victim was Charles Charlie Bigelow, an undercover Pinkerton detective who was posing as Jesse James, committing robberies, incurring the wrath and vengeance of the real Jesse James. But did this Agent Bigelow guy even really exist? Eh. His name doesn't show up in the usual credible places I tend to find records of the deceased when I searched for him. Dalton's theory holds that there was a murder hoax conspiracy involving several people, all close friends of the real Jesse James, who conspired together to murder someone and who then all swore before the investigating officials that the murder victim was Jesse James. The goal of the conspirators was to manipulate and or control the murder evidence in such a way that the law enforcement and judicial authorities involved in investigating the murder would certify that Jesse was legally dead, thus setting Jesse James free. It's a cool story, bro. Right? Uh, And then what? And then just the Ford brothers endured a shit ton of public scorn for years because they were just really good friends of Jesse. Uh, And his family faked their grief, I guess. And law officials and friends who'd met him or known him, you know, well, were duped into thinking the dead body put on display was was really him. Now, do I believe this shit? Uh, No, not for a second. I don't believe Jesse James would abandon his wife, Z, and his children and let his family live in utter misery and financial ruin for many years, which for sure happened. Uh, I do think, good for you, old man Dalton. You know, again, cool story. Way to enjoy your bonus golden years. I mean, dude dude created quite a little fancy life for himself. You know, over 100 years old. He tricked a fair number of journalists and authors. He was lucid and able to weave quite the tale, quite the tall tale uh, at that age. I hope that I can, A, live that long, and B, still be able to fuck with people on that age. Also, Jesse James' body was exhumed in 1995. His DNA was tested against that of a descendant, and the results proved that it was highly likely that investigators were indeed examining the remains of the outlaw. Basically, DNA testing confirmed that Jesse did die in 1882 as much as familial DNA testing can. Jesse James potentially faking his own death is an elaborate conspiracy revolving around the infamous outlaw, but it's not the most elaborate one. Another interesting theory comes from one of Jesse's own descendants, and it includes not only a different fake death story, 
but also secret societies and even connections to treasures like the Oak Island Money Pit. A man named Daniel J. Duke, a man who claims to be Jesse James' great-great-grandson, has allegedly put 20 years of research into his family's sordid, mythicized, and hyperbolic history. Dude, uh, Duke takes the romanticized version of Jesse's life and turns it up to 11. One louder. In his 2019 book, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, Secret Diaries, Coded Maps, and the Knights of the Golden Circle. Something Jesse James left behind some secret diaries and some, you know, coded treasure maps. And Duke apparently has one of Jesse's diaries and has copies of a few of these treasure maps. And working to decrypt these maps, uh, Duke claims to have revealed a number of hidden treasures yet to be recovered, as well as connections between the infamous train robber and Freemasonry, of course, the Knights Templar, of course, uh, the Founding Fathers, and even Jewish mysticism. So, you know, Jesse James was a fucking space lizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book also explains how Jesse James used techniques involving sacred geometry and esoteric symbols to hide his treasures and encode the maps. Duke claims his decoding of some of the map secrets do confirm the existence of Jesse James' treasure in Oak Island, of course. Duke also explains how he thinks Jesse James faked his death and lived out his final years under the name James L. Courtney. In 1882, he became, apparently became a Freemason under that name. Duke claims to uncover truths about James' affiliation with the Knights of the Golden Circle, that super pro-slavery secret society that is reported to have buried Confederate gold across the U.S. Duke claims that his famous ancestor was not a member of the group, but actually linked to much older secret societies like the Rosicrucians. Duke goes to great lengths to win the reader over with not just the family history he claims to possess, which includes that uh, one supposed diary and several other artifacts, um, uh, but also with information on the DNA test of Jesse James in which, uh, you know, he claims that their family was uh, you know, that the, the body dug up in 1905 was actually not true. And in fact, his mom even wrote a book. Uh, David Duke's mother wrote a book in 1998 titled Jesse James Lived and Died in Texas. And she claims to prove that the body of Jesse James, you know, that was dug up and DNA tested was actually somebody else. It, there's a lot to digest in his claims. From millions of dollars of gold buried under a lake somewhere to fucking Oak Island to stories about Jesse James robbing a donkey train that was transporting tens of millions of dollars worth of gold. Uh, since Duke is mostly pushing his book towards conspiracy shows and kind of it's popular in tinfoil hat kind of circles, it is best to approach his story with a grain or two or a huge goddamn mound of salt. Do I buy his story? Fuck no. Not even for a little bit. But it's conspiracy that is out there, so I thought I'd you know, acknowledge it. Uh, it comes across to me as, as Randy Shock type of insanity. You know? Like, 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 like if Randy was writing about it, just, hi, did you know? Jesse James was a Knights Templar and also a Freemason Satanist. And he used blood sacrifice to bury magic gold in a dwarf mine that leads to Oak Island, Ark of the Covenant. Did I tell you what Paul Harvey told my dad about Rosicrucian gold? Jesse buried in Atlantis? Ask a Lemurian if you don't believe me. See you later. There's no need to try and make Jesse's life bigger than it was. It was already legendary. In the 12 to 15 years of his criminal career, Jesse James took part in somewhere between 19 and 26 robberies, including banks, trains, stagecoaches. His crimes stretched from Mississippi to West Virginia to Minnesota. Some have estimated he, he helped steal around $5 million, you know, in today's dollars. Between 17 and 20 people died as a result of his gang's robberies, including seven of his cohorts. Law enforcement and private detectives failed repeatedly to catch Jesse. You know, uh, Missouri earned the nickname the Robber State because of his activities. Jesse fought in numerous Civil War battles, guerrilla skirmishes. Uh, who knows how many men met their deaths at his hands when he ran with men like Bloody Bill and Quantrell's Raiders. The dude lived a long and bloody life. 
And as an outlaw, he, yeah, he never got caught, which is crazy to me. He, he robbed time and time again for years and got away with it. And was he a hero? No, I don't think so. I think he was a seriously tough son of a bitch. And if I lived around him, you know, I sure as hell w- wouldn't have crossed him. But I don't think he was a hero. I think he was really good at being an outlaw. I also do feel some sympathy for him. It's easy for us to get on our moral high horses now and just simplistically say slavery was bad, South, wrong. Should have just laid down their guns and accepted that and been better people. But we didn't live 150 years ago. We weren't raised as if that was normal. We didn't grow up and then run, you know, farms and plantations that we thought depended on slave labor to work. You know, we also weren't beaten by Union soldiers. We didn't have our homes burned to the ground or family members assaulted and killed. Jesse did experience all of this. If I was him, I'm guessing I would have fucking hated the Union too. And in the sense of, you know, you fucked with my family. Now I'm going to fuck with you. I, I, I get some of what he did. I get his teenage joining of the Confederate guerrilla forces. But as for his deeds going on for year after year after the war, I, I think he just likes stealing people's shit. He could have left the area. He could have started a new life for himself, but he didn't. He robbed and killed over and over again. Outlaw is a cool word, but really at the end of his life, you know, he was more of a thief or, or a terrorist, or just a highly celebrated psychopath with a good PR guy. Uh, all that being said, I still love his story. So bold and brazen and his crime so tough. And there is something romantic about the, about the notion of the Wild West outlaw. Not hiding behind a bulletproof vest or sniping people with a rifle or walking into a mall and open fire on unarmed people with, you know, superior weaponry. I mean, I know the bank tellers and railroad employees weren't armed either, but, you know, the way these guys robbed and raided, I, I, I don't want to say there was something cool about it, but their crimes somehow, or somehow seem, uh, I don't know, more dignified to me in some way than a lot more modern crime. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just watched too many Westerns growing up. Uh, maybe just romanticized it for me. Maybe I just spent too much time dreaming about being an outlaw myself, riding off in a, on a horseback after taking a bunch of cold, hard cash from a, from a train. I mean, I know it's fucked up, but even just thinking about it right now, I'm like, ah, that sounds fucking sweet. Uh, I'm probably just rationalizing about a guy who may have been a total dirtbag. I don't know, let's get out of here. Let's go to today's top five takeaways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, it's important to rem- to have a solid nickname or a solid name. Just, you know, if you want to be remembered. Billy the Kid. Wild Bill Hickok. Solid. Jesse James. Powerful. Good alliteration. Frank James, not as cool. Sounds like an accountant. Frank sounds kind of like a bummer. Windy Jim Cummins, dumb. You need a cool name to be a memorable outlaw. Reverend Dr. Paisley could be an outlaw now with his new nickname of Horsecock Johnson. All right, that's fucking, that's powerful. It's alpha. Way better than micro pain. No Woo! one, <laughs> there you scared me. No one gives a shit about the criminal exploits of micro pain. Micro pain is running off with the fucking weasel with, with flappy sour patch. Not Horsecock Johnson. He's with the James Younger gang. Number two, Jesse James married his first cousin and they had kids to survive to adulthood. Jesse Edward James, Jesse Jr. and Mary Susan James. While, you know, two others died after birth, maybe because their parents were cousins. Don't know that for sure. But I think it is important to spread those genes around, Meat Sacks. One of the books we referenced for this episode was written by Jesse's son. A lot of misspelled words in it. And when I came across them, I did keep thinking, maybe we would have spelled that right. If his, if his DNA had a little more balance, if his genes were, you know, a little bit more spread out, the pool was a little deeper. Number three, Jesse James didn't fake his own death. He didn't have coded diaries and treasure maps leading to Oak Island. Stop it. Fun to think about though. Number four, Jesse James was not the Robin Hood type character he is often portrayed as. 
the gangs he belonged to didn't, you know, bury, uh, you know, uh, the, the money to, to, for the poor to find later. They buried it for themselves to find later. They spent the money they stole. They didn't steal from the rich to give it to the poor. They stole from trains, banks, and stagecoaches to keep that shit for themselves. Number five, new info, something we didn't discuss. Apparently, Jesse James' son, Jesse James Jr., worked for the very man who procured his father's death. Missouri Governor Critter. Governor Critter, Thomas T. Crittenden. The story uh, goes like this. When former Governor Thomas T. Crittenden was asked if he had employed in his office Jesse James Jr., whose father, the outlaw, was killed through Mr. Crittenden's instrumentality, uh, Governor uh, Critter replied, if I were to build a monument of denials as high as that erected to Washington at the Capitol, I don't suppose I could effectively stop the continued existence of this story. The facts in the case are that several years ago, my son, Thomas J. Crittenden Jr., then a real estate dealer in Kansas City, a now county clerk of Jackson County, in which Kansas City is located, advertised for a boy to work in his office. On the morning following the advertisement, a number of boys were on hand and my son reported to a kind of civil service examination to test their merits. The boy whose papers were best was called forward and asked his name. My name is Jesse James Jr., he replied. My son was more than amazed and said, do you know who I am? Yes, sir, you are Governor Crittenden's son. Well, then you go home and tell your mother about all this. And if she is willing for you to work for me and at the wages I offer, come back tomorrow morning. Very well, sir. I have got to help my mother and sister and I'll come back. And back he was the next morning. At this time, Mrs. Jesse James was living in the suburbs of Kansas City. Now, let me tell you what became of the boy. He remained with my son for several years, being honest and faithful to a degree. Then my son secured him a place in Armour's Packing House in Kansas City, where he is now employed, respected by everyone, and having a number of men under him. And he is but 20 years of age. That is the whole story. So, just weird little uh, twist there, weird little side story. I mean, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, could you work for the son of the man who hired an assassin to kill your dad? Time suck. Top five takeaways. Jesse James and his involvement in the James Younger gang has been sucked. What a life. Got to be one of the most beloved serial murderers in history. Uh, thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Vela Camp, now here in the Suck Dungeon, Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock Johnson Paisley. Uh, thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. New update coming soon, I promise. Thanks to Axis Apparel for all the recent cool-ass merch. Thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper, Flint Secret merch even coming out. Uh, thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper, Flannery and those uh, hammers of knowledge, Sarah and Rebecca Lilly, for their research assistance on this one. Also, thanks to the Time Suckers and med students, Nick Botcher and Jessica Lung, for lending their expertise to the anti-vaccination conspiracy suck. Sorry, I forgot to thank you two weeks ago. I blame Lucifina. Be gone, distracting temptress. And for some reason, I blame Monkle, Wendy Jim. Go get here, Wendy Jim. And thanks to all the space lizards who came to the Time Suck, the gathering on Saturday and made it such a big success. This Saturday before this past Saturday, Saturday, as you're hearing it now. Uh, looking for some social interaction with other suckers? Head to the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group, now up to 12,000 members, uh, or around 12,000 members. It's getting close to becoming a small virtual city of somewhat like-minded, curious, beautiful weirdos. Hail Nimrod. Next Monday, Leonardo da Vinci, painter, architect, inventor, student of all things scientific, guy with a name cool enough to be used for a Ninja Turtle many years later. Uh, a guy, A genius. Who crossed so many disciplines, he epitomizes the term Renaissance man. Today, he remains best known for his art, including two paintings that remain among the world's most famous and admired, Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. But he did much more than paint. Largely self-educated, he filled dozens of secret notebooks with inventions, observations, theories about pursuits, from aeronautics to anatomy. He was far, far ahead of his time. 
the rest of the world in the late 15th and early 16th centuries just beginning to, you know, share knowledge in books made with movable type. The concepts expressed in Da Vinci's notebooks were just difficult for them to interpret. He was truly ahead of his time. As a result, his contemporaries didn't appreciate the full scope of his genius. The combination of intellect and imagination that allowed him to create, at least on paper, inventions like the bicycle, the helicopter, an airplane based on the physiology and flying capability of a bat. But did he kill anyone? Is he hiding treasure in the Oak Island money pit? Don't know. You have to listen next week to find out. Now let's get to some time sucker updates. Updates? Get your time sucker updates. This first update comes from someone identifying themselves as general nonsense. Ooh, mystery, I like it. They write, Greetings, Master Sucker. Remember when the U.S. government was investigating the Russian email probe relating to influencing U.S. elections? I do. While rummaging through piles of data, authorities ran across references to a Russian top-secret program. It roughly translates to Project Weak Body. Sublayo Tello? Something. It was a project created during the Cold War and was designed to spread propaganda across the countries of Europe and the United States regarding the dangers of vaccines. The end goal of this project was to convince Russian foes to not vaccinate their children so that in the event of a war, Russian armies would more easily defeat those who opposed Russia. The project was created by none other than Vladimir Putin while he was still working within the KGB. When the Berlin Wall fell, he claimed to have burned Russian intelligence documents, but since he was the one that created those documents detailing the plans, it is questionable whether he actually followed through with the destruction, or if he did, it's presumed, uh, created new plans from his memory, or as it's presumed. This is how the whole anti-vax movement really started, as the brainchild of Russian intelligence in order to conquer Western civilization. The plan was put in place, and a convenient patsy was found in Dr. Wakefield. Wakefield still maintains his innocence uh, and has his own conspiracy theories regarding the pharmaceutical companies that are out to get him and discredit him. This was all cleverly crafted and well thought out by Putin decades before Wakefield came uh, into the forefront. So the anti-vax movement is just another part of Russians' plans to conquer the West. And the only way to truly combat this sort of subversive plan is to vaccinate our kids. Not only will it help their immune systems, but it'll also counteract Russian plans to destroy the West. Hope you like that read. It's entirely made up and false. <laughs> but I think someone who is anti-vax would believe it enough to actually decide to vaccinate their kids. You can't be crazy with facts and logic. You just have to be more crazy and outlandish. Hail Nimrod, general nonsense. That's fucking great. Love the creative misdirect and the message, general nonsense. Really love the idea, actually, of creating conspiracies. Uh, they get conspiracy theorists to do things that are good for their lives and for the rest of us. Uh, we, need to, we need to come up with some conspiracies that make people uh, want to spend more time in the library. Uh, go back to school, uh, enjoy school, take some critical thinking courses, and love self-improvement. What if more people watch videos about that kind of shit on YouTube instead of watching stuff on chemtrails and the Bilderbergs? That really would be amazing. I, lo I love where your head's at. Uh, all kinds of topics. Hail Nimrod, that was great. All kinds of topics getting touched on by uh, Super Sucker Meg A in this update. Meg writes, Dear Master Suckington, warning in advance, this email is going to be all over the place. I'll start by saying thank you. This week's episode gave me a huge laugh right when I needed it. I started listening to the episode on my way home from work and was on the verge of tears due to money stress over our wedding that is less than three weeks away now. But when you started reading Randy Shock's author bio from Amazon, <laughs> those stress tears turned into tears of laughter. By the time you were done reading, I felt much better. Ah, oh, I love hearing stuff like that. That's what's so great about Time Suck. Even in the darkest episodes, you find some humor to inject. As I continued to listen to the episode on my way back to work today, it got me thinking about how many creeps I've encountered in my life. And it made me realize 
you know, how, how with a more paranoid brain, it really is easy to see evil conspiracies everywhere. The first flashback came when you were talking about the world's biggest piece of shit pediatrician. And he reminded me of my own former pediatrician. I never liked him because he was a mean old man. He t- uh, tipped over into creepy old man when I went to him as a teenager and he insisted I had to take my bra off so he could use his stethoscope to listen to my heart and lungs, which no doctor has ever requested since. And actually on that note, really quick, several messages from other time suckers who have had other doctors in the past talk about that exact same phenomenon. So fucking creepy. Uh, luckily after that, my mom said I never had to go see him again. Then you started talking about the Catholic priest scandals and it reminded me of my aunt's neighbor. For many years, her neighbor was a priest. He was a nice guy or seemed to be a nice guy and she was friendly with him. He would hold mass in his backyard on Sundays in the summer and would let me fish off of his docks when I would visit her or fish off of his dock, yeah. Then he got busted for pedophilia. It was such a shock because you never would have guessed. It's the people you never would have suspected that make it all that much more scary. Now backtracking to last week's episode, I meant to write in last week, but note the aforementioned wedding stress. My soon-to-be sister-in-law and her husband are anti-vaxxers. Part of me wants to make them listen to the episode, but I fear they're already too far gone. They've gone to multiple rallies and are planning on homeschooling their older son after he gets kicked out of school for not having the proper vaccinations. It looks better. They said, quote, it looks better for future lawsuits than pulling him out. Oh, than pulling him voluntarily. Huh? Oh, that's crazy. They want him to get kicked out so they can sue. Unfucking believable Well, on one hand, I can respect their desire to not have the government tell them how they have to raise their kids. I can't say I respect their lack of inoculations. In an ideal world, the government wouldn't have to force vaccines because every parent would want to vaccinate their kid to keep them safe. I think the problem is that we're so far removed from where these diseases were a huge deal. Agreed. We no longer see hundreds of thousands of people dying from them, so we don't think catching measles is a big deal or an issue. I just feel kind of bad for my future nephew since they complain about him not having anyone to play with in their neighborhood, but are now planning on taking him out of the place where he has friends and kids to play with just for their own agenda. Well, this has already gone on long enough, so I'll let you move on to all the other emails you have to read. Keep on sucking, Meg. A, thank you, Meg, for all the information. Thanks for for sharing that. I'm sure it resonates with other listeners. Yeah, covering a lot of interesting information. And it is scary how these people can just, you know, be around us that you mentioned earlier in the email. Uh, Funny family wackadoodle lost technology update coming in from sucker Robin uh, Kibbe, who writes, Dr. Reverend Meatsack Dan, I've been listening to your podcast since my boyfriend showed it to me almost four years ago. I've, you know what I like? And this isn't a knock on you at all. Uh, it's only been out for almost uh, three years. But because it's become a part of people's lives, I hear people saying stuff all the time now, like, oh, I've been listening for like five years, which I love. I love. Uh, I love that it feels like it's just been around. Uh, I've loved your comedy ever since. Can't wait until I turn 21 so that I see you spectacularly air banjo in person. It's fucking beautiful. You'll, you'll tear up. I'll tell you now, you're going to tear up. Uh, I just finished listening to your Lost Technology episode, and I thought you would like to know about my parents. I grew up as a Mormon in Utah, which, as I'm sure you know, means I was surrounded by my religion constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, being a smart person, saw, saw through some of the leadership of the church, some nonsense that was going on, and my parents became inactive when I was 15. At first, they still believed in all the teachings of the LDS church, just not the leadership. They found a group of friends who believed the same thing, and they went on to have sacrament on Sundays together. I get that. Flash forward to five years later, my parents and their friends are deeply involved in some new age shit. My mom keeps crystals in her car now, and they believe in aliens, etc. My favorite part is that they watch ancient aliens religiously. They watch it seriously. My mom watches ancient aliens with a Bible on her lap, taking notes about all the crazy shit they talk about. Believing every word, there was an episode about the pyramids, specifically that they are all connected by some sort of energy, and that if they were still connected, there would be a power grid that would be more powerful than any tech we have today. Season five, episode one. And my mom bought all of it. She said, maybe if they were all connected, it would summon aliens. 
uh, or angels or maybe Christ himself. There are passages in the Book of Mormon that can verify this. You talking about the pyramids reminded me of that incident, and I thought you and the team might get a kick out of my crazy but loving parents. <laughs> I love the work you are doing with this passion project. Look forward to seeing you live. I would love to see a Latter-day Saints episode because they have, uh, you know, so much information on them and have somewhat of a shady history. I will gladly give you the articles and books I have in, about that history if you're interested. Thanks for your time. Keep on sucking, Robin. Yeah, actually, Robin, yes. If you want to send in those, in those books, you can send them into P.O. Box 3891, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. Uh, we are going to be doing an LDS suck later this year, and I am excited for it to, just to learn more about the interesting history of that organization. And thanks for sharing that about the uh, Pyramid Power Grid. I love how serious your mom is about it. Now some suck love coming in from Roman uh, Katruda. Uh, this fantastic time sucker writes, Hello, Big Daddy Suck. My name is Roman Katruda. I am from Moldova, but I'm, I currently reside in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, showed up a lot in today's tale. I love the podcast and your stand-up, uh, and I cannot wait to see you here in St. Louis. I'm working on getting there for 2020, by the way. I know you aren't coming here anytime soon, but when you do, I definitely will buy a ticket and bring some friends along. I'm writing because the podcast is the only thing that's helped me from going insane at my job. I work long hours. The podcast makes the time fly by. My favorite episode is split between our filthy and crazy boy, Vlad, the hokey pokey, and the samurais. Did you know that there's a graphic novel called Vagabond that is about the life of Miyamoto Mushashi? It is very good and I recommend it. Oh man, I wish I had more time for graphic novels, but I have heard that one. I just haven't read it. Just want to say thank you. I'm glad that I found a new family here in the Space Lizard Army. Praise be to Bojangles. Keep on sucking. Much love, Roman. Ah, oh, praise be to the Space Lizard Roman. Yeah, thanks for supporting the show and thanks for that update. Next update comes from cult member Mike uh, Colopy and is probably one of the cutest shout-out requests ever. Dear Master the Suck, I've written in before, but this reason is because I saw that the Coeur d'Alene Little League team made it to the regional fi finals in the Little League World Series. They unfortunately lost in the finals on August 10th but they should get a shout out since those boys played their hearts out on that field and went down swinging, literally. They may not be old enough to listen, but maybe, you know, one of their parents or family members does and maybe lift a spirit or two, uh, you know, if need be. P.S. I'll be at your Minnesota show. Hope to meet you since it's big deal. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Mikey, for writing that in. Yes, big congrats to the kids here in CDA who almost made it back to the Little League World Series. A lot of amazing baseball being played by these kids in town. Uh, I saw that in the paper, but forgot to mention it. Very cool. Uh, hopefully I can get to watch them play one of these days. What a, what a great game too, man. Love baseball. Uh, this next update brings me joy as it sounds like the Time Suck University is taking hold in another mind or two. It's from Time Sucker, Nick Lathan, who writes, Dear Master Sucker, I wanted to write you to say thank you for the various influences you've had in my life. Uh, my brother introduced me to your stand-up. Yeah, thank you for that. Actually, I paused there because I was just thinking of, I always think of ridiculous shit to say. And right when you, you were saying such a nice thing, I want to be like, whatever, fucking dork. And it's like, move, let's move on to the next one. No, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, my brother introduced me to your stand-up and then your podcast shortly afterwards. You've remarked, uh, oh, uh, you know, re-sparked my interest in learning about various subjects. Even when they might be considered dark, the biggest influence though has been on my brother himself. After starting to listen, he started making serious steps to further his education. This is important to me because he never showed much interest in school when we were growing up. Now he's going to college for green architecture. Seeing the spark in him has been amazing. I hope this message finds you well. Hoping you could give him a shout out. His name is Dylan. And he's made a couple road trips from the heart of Branson, Missouri. Misery. Uh, Branson, Missouri. Uh, for the sole purpose of seeing your stand up. Well, hail Nimrod and hail Dylan. Get that fucking degree, you beautiful bastard. And do so much good in the world. Love it. Love it. Now, very cool vaccination. Just a couple left. Very cool vaccination info coming in from super sucker, Matt Baker. A guy who works 
and vaccinations. He writes, insert technical jargon. Hey, time suck. Power stream the anti-vax and ninth circle cults. Love them. Thanks for the good info. Have a couple things I'd like to know. You'd like you to know about vaccines specifically as part of my job. I administer vaccines like tetanus, hepatitis A and B, influenza, etc. And as someone who thinks critically, and if we're being honest, suspiciously, I always read the manufacturer's information with these. The portions we commonly refer to as package inserts are included in medicines to be administered and give us data used for most of the studies done on the drugs. For example, a specific manufacturer now uses canine kidney cells to conjugate their flu shots, helping to bypass allergies to eggs and chicken in part of the population. Easy enough to ask for, and if your nurse, medical assistant, clinician has read and knows their stuff, they can spout it off easily. Also, of a technical boring note, individual dose packaging for vaccines like the flu shot does not generally require preservative ingredients. See uh, thimerosal, the organomercury preservative, depending on the manufacturer. They ship refrigerated to eliminate the need for additional ingredients. Multi-dose vials will usually contain the preservative in small quantities to keep the vaccine stable after the vials are used for several patients, but you have already pointed out how minuscule the amount of mercury contained actually is. Thanks for reading this crap. It's kind of my job. Used to do workplace education and training for my job until the corporate takeover shit-canned me, so I'm back on the floor with my patients, doing what I enjoy most anyway, aggravating my coworkers, also making them nervous with random, unprompted serial killer stats. Hail Nimrod. Also, for the love of God, if you have a question about medicine or healthcare, I know you have the best team for research, but I'm happy to answer questions provide phonetic pronunciation guides for medical jargon. See education and training. Also, also, something I've been thinking about for a while, I think might help to suck. Please tell me if I'm horribly mistaken. Can Dan, okay, can, yeah, can you drop some more anchor points and timelines? Drop in an anchor point to refer back to, such as X date, Y date. So we're three months from X date now. Helps to add cohesion to a narrative. Also, realistically, drawing a time frame. Dan does this occasionally, but I think more reference points in addition to listing the sequential dates would help show a flow of time a little better, especially for those of us that have listened to the suck on one and a half speed on the app for so long, we can't go back to normal speed. Just a thought, hope it helps. Happy to have a place for my rabid, morbid curiosity. Thanks as always, Matt. Uh, yeah, man, that's, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sending that in. Thanks for the notes about vaccinations that people can actually get things that don't have certain uh, preservatives in them. They can find out what, what ingredients is in those vaccines, if that will make them feel better about getting vaccinated. And also for the constructive criticism uh, about how to lay out these long and sometimes very long now narratives. I like the anchor point idea. I will work on including that in future sex. Uh, two left, little, little quick ones. A sweet ass psychedelic Viking mushroom update coming in from space. There's a Christopher Wallen who writes, hello, Dan, the man sucking in the first. This is your faithful space under Christopher Wallen. On the Viking suck, you stated that the berserkers would eat mushrooms, but just had to share that this was uh, Amanita muscaria that they would eat. I think I'm saying that right. It's the world's oldest fungi or fungi and the same mushroom used in Super Mario. It's red with white spots. When eating makes you feel drunk. Look what you've done to me. But after it gets processed through your liver, it gains hallucinogenic properties only through the consumption of their own urine. Uh, so they would eat the mushrooms, and then the following day before going into battle, they would drink their urine and hallucinate, which made them extra brutal. That's fucking fascinating. Thought you might enjoy this. Yep. Feel free to use my name. Keep on sucking. Thank you, Christopher Wallen. And then the last shout out from Time Sucker Nate. Has to warm even the most chilly of sociopaths meat pumps. Uh, Nate writes, Dear Master Sucker, I introduced my wife to your stand-up before we were married. She immediately fell in love with it. She is an avid listener. I will walk by our bathroom and hear snippets of the secret suck when she's getting ready or getting in her car and it's playing. 
as long as our two and a half year old isn't with us. We've bonded over the stand up and the podcast. This is why I was hoping you could give her a shout out for me if possible. Her name is Jordan. And on August 22nd this year, we'll be married four years. So uh, I think I've, it's, I've missed that. What day is it today, Joe? Is it way past the 22nd? Yeah, no, it's one day. Today's the 23rd. So we're going to be way past it by the time this Okay, so by the time this comes out. Okay, so a little bit late, but close. Uh, I couldn't think of a better anniversary gift to give her than to hear the master of all that sucks say happy anniversary. Thanks for all you do. Keep on sucking. Can't wait to see you in Indianapolis at the end of September. Your loyal listener, Nate. Well, congrats, Jordan. Congrats on the anniversary, you guys. Hail Jordan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jordanator. Are you ready for tonight's anniversary match? Making his way to the cage is Nate, walking tall and rock hard and ready to rumble. Joining him, tonight's epic fuck fest is the Jordanator. Let's take it off and get it on. Celebrate that love in naked, sweaty, groany style. Pow! Hail, Lucifina. See you two weirdos, Indy. That's all for today's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening and spreading the suck meat sacks. Enjoy your week. Subscribe to Scared to Death, the new horror podcast. Uh, come see me in San Diego and Hollywood showbiz. Don't rob any trains in the name of the South. The war has been over a real long time now. And you know what? Mostly just, watch, how about you just keep on sucking if you would? <laughs> Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck.